Hey there, Horribles. Welcome to our first release in February. February is going to be a little bit different than every other month, uh, just like October is for us, where we do something different. Uh, what you're going to be hearing this month specifically are movies that are directed by black directors, because we're honoring Black History Month here in the U.S., so every Friday you're going to hear about a movie directed by a black director that we talk about in just our, our normal type of episodes. We're going to have some great guests in here to talk about those, including uh, the first off this Friday is going to be Blackula. Week after that, you're going to hear about East Bayou, which is directed by Cassie Lemons. Uh, the third week, you're going to hear about Us, directed by Jordan Peele. And the last week, you're going to hear about The New Candyman, which is directed by Nia DaCosta. In addition, every Monday throughout February... We're going to be talking about a short film that is directed by a black woman in the horror genre as well. So you're going to get a double up on new episodes, Monday and Friday. Uh, in between, on Wednesdays like today, what we're going to be doing is dropping back in some of the episodes that we have done before, talking about horror movies directed by uh, you know black people. Uh, this episode, uh, we're going to play again for you our episode about Horror Noir, which was is, is definitely something that I think everybody should check out. It is about the history of uh, black people in horror film, especially in the U.S. Um, and it talks a bit about Blackula, which we'll, we will talk about on Friday, as well as several of the other movies we'll cover throughout this. But Horror Noir is great. We recommend you check it out. Uh, it's on Shudder right now, so, you know, stop and grab that. Uh, and, you know, we did have several guests on to talk about it last year during February. So we wanted, again, to go ahead and drop that in here so that you guys can enjoy that instead of just, you know, sharing a regular digression on Wednesday. Um, and we hope you enjoy this and all the other stuff we've got coming up for February. Uh, until next time, stay horrified. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified. The show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. <laughs> Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're pretending that we're also in a movie theater as we discuss the documentary that covers some of what we talk about, covers it way better than we could ever do it. Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. First, sitting in front of me, looking up all the actors on IMDb while the movie's still on, it's comic book writer Danny Lohr. Danny, how are you and what's your choice of movie theater snacks tonight? Oh boy, I'm always going to rock uh, the largest possible slushy possible and uh, maybe some Skittles. And I feel really called out about the cast list <laughs> thing because my wife gets mad at me for doing that all the time. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's everything I could do not to do it in the theaters. I feel like I've been watching so many movies at home since the pandemic started that like going to theater, you're going to have to like retrain yourself to not just pull out your phone in the middle of the movie. Uh, secondly, to my right, sitting in the middle of the row, having needed to pee for an hour, but afraid to leave the movie for even a second, is English literature educator and all-around nerd, Emmanuel Lipscomb. Emmanuel, how are you and what's your theater snack of choice? I'm doing well, and I am all about the salty sweet, so like big salted popcorn with like raisinettes or some other chocolate in it. Fantastic. And behind us, throwing popcorn at our heads, it's photographer extraordinaire and horror lover, Ali Mullen. Ali, how are you and what's your theater snack of choice? 
I'm okay. And in addition to the $20 popcorn I'm throwing at your heads, I have also snuck a burrito into the theater. True story. <laughs> uh, that's something we have in common. <laughs> snuck a whole Taco Bell <laughs> meal into the theater before. And finally, popping a bunch of crunch like it's going out of style and drinking the largest bucket of soda available. It's me, your host, Jeremy Whitley. Guys, this one is pretty unusual, so I'm not completely sure how it's going to go with the format, but we're going to take this rough outline and, and go one step at a time and just uh, go with whatever you guys want to talk about. Yeah, so we normally have a specific non-spoilery section here, but this is a documentary, so like having a non-spoilery section just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so we'll just run down kind of the basics of it. The Horror Noir is directed by Xavier Bergen. Uh, the writers are Ashley Blackwell and Daniel Burroughs. It's based on a book by Robin R. Means Coleman. Uh, it stars Robin R. Means Coleman, uh, Nana Reeve Du, Tony Todd, Keith David, Rachel True, Ken Foray, Jordan Peele, uh, Paula Jai Parker, Lorette Devine. It's got a whole like great cast of people that got together to talk about this stuff. Uh, most of whom have, you know, a movie that they're in to talk about, but it covers the whole history of, you know, Black Americans and horror movies uh, from from early cinema to now, uh, or a couple of years ago when this was made, um, and by talking to a number of the stars and directors and commentators and educators, many of whom are part of that. And uh, there's not much to say about trigger warnings, other than, you know, it does have clips from some of the movies it talks about. So there's, you know, a little stabbing here. Uh, there's, you know, not any of the usual stuff we have to warn people about, like, oh, sexual assault or pet death or anything like that. There are a few real life clips of lynchings as well yeah. that we yes. need to mention, too. Um, so there's a overlap between movies being recommended and talked about and some real life historical stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, good. Good looking out there. That is uh, some some things that people may may not be ready for otherwise. So let's. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the format of this uh, documentary. How did you guys feel about just like the way it's shot, the way it's put together, how they interview people? Yeah, I really liked the conversational style, especially that like sitting in the theater, watching the clips and then getting the conversation between these directors and actors and creatives about what they're seeing, especially because of the number of times and one of the folks would be like, oh, I haven't seen that. I need to watch that, which is <laughs> sort of fascinating. Yeah, I really uh, enjoyed that aspect too. And I think especially the pairings of people were really good choices because I think that they played off of each other really well in terms of their lived experiences and kind of comparing notes for their careers. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was interesting the sort of different pairings because there are some folks that, you know, it's like somebody who, you know, has been doing this for decades and, you know, somebody who's got one movie they've worked on or, or you know, have not been around for when some of these things came out. So I, I, I particularly like listening to, uh, I mean, I like listening to Keith David talk anytime, but like Keith David and Ken Foray, like sitting up there in the front, just like trading, trading old stories about, you know, 70s and 80s Hollywood was like, that's Pete good stuff. And, and I mean, honestly, if I could hire Keith David to do anything, I would hire Keith David to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I was I was giddy to see Ken Foray and Keith David in the same scene. It's also really nice to see Black folks at the theater. They're talking about the context of, you know, Black people love horror movies. Horror movies don't love Black people. And so it's nice to see those folks in the audience, too. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really interesting. There's so many documentary movies that are shot in that strict, like, shoulders up, you know, looking at the camera kind of way to, like, have people chatting back and forth to each other was, was really neat, uh, with the exception of Jordan Peele, who, like, 
his whole bit is shot in his house like while he's just chilling <laughs> i actually um one of the moments though that i think was most interesting to me with jordan i don't think would have happened if he was talking to someone else and he wasn't in his home uh that he expresses uh not directly, but like you can see it and hear it in his voice, like a certain level of of emotion when he talk. Uh, you know, fast forward to the end, but you know, like when he's talking about um, the decision to change the ending for Get Out, and I don't think we would have gotten that bit if he was in the theater with them, because I think that he was in a place to be uh, a bit more vulnerable than I think if he was playing off of someone on camera. Yeah. Um, and that was just one of those moments that like hit me hard, uh, particularly thinking about uh, even all my favorite horror, you know, directors and writers and, and them talking about white creators talking about horror versus black creators talking about horror and, and a different kind of emotional thing when talking about the fears that they use in their stories. Uh, and it was a, a moment that kind of just hi highlighted that for me, at least. That is a good point. Um, I think that works kind of both ways because I feel like having people play off of each other and talk about things you, you sometimes you know might get the things that they might that might not have otherwise come up let's start at the beginning here honestly generally for me the, the it's an interesting decision to start with birth of a nation obviously I hate that movie <laughs> it's just the worst um but uh, what did you guys think about the the decision to sort of start with I guess she, she's looking at it as you know black people as horror at the beginning of this for you know filmmakers like this i think it's a good reminder that the horrors are not actually that far away from reality and thinking that like a lot of movies that we watch there's some basis in this was based on a true story or this is something that someone experienced amplified for the big screen so it's nice to remind audiences that that's that's often the case yeah so i got dorkily really excited because uh end of last year yeah end of last year um a book came out called ring shout if none of you have read it by peter jelly clark um it was uh, a novella that is a black horror retelling of history uh in which there is the kkk but there are also so like there's the human white members of the kkk and as it becomes stronger, they become and they allow entrance into our world by demons who are also part of this. Um, and the perspective of the book is uh, through these uh, Black women who are demon hunters. But um, the birth of a nation actually plays a very strong part in the movie, uh, in the book, because it is... Uh, conceived of as used as kind of a, a magical foci in that the, the airing of this movie and the energy around it and the power behind it in and of itself gave demons more power. And so there's an almost countdown to a re-release of it in theaters in like, uh, like the 1920s at the, like the start of this book. And that's kind of like, you know, by the end of this novella, that's what's supposed to happen. Um, and so there's a really interesting conversation happening right now about viewing that movie as a horror movie but not for white people but rather the start of a different kind of horror for black people um and so like for me it was a really interesting start to the uh to the piece i like the idea that i think we can sort of compartmentalize horror as like the oh it's got you know monsters or there's a slasher or there's some sort of thing and then 
really preying on no i mean the core of it is a story that seeks to scare and you know titillate or what have you and like that has all the trappings of horror and it is still like a lot of our modern horror based in a genuine fear although that fear has this racist basis um it's not my favorite that a black documentary started with this white story uh but I mean, I think it was an important piece to sort of loop in, so. Yeah, and I, I do think it's also important that they have like a, a bit at the beginning where, you know, they, they set up and establish what they're doing before jumping immediately into Birth of a Nation. Um, yeah, because I, I remember I saw Birth of a Nation in high school when I was, you know, a, a baby film geek and I was just like, I'm going to work my way through the AFI 100 years, 100 greatest movies and had no idea like what I was getting into when I watched that movie. And uh, just the like, Oof. yeah, <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's a lot, obviously. Yeah, that um, obviously that's not one of our recommendations for people to watch. They, they do also talk about in this section, uh, Son of Ngagi, uh, which is directed by Spencer Williams, which they, they pointed out as having like, being one of the first movies that actually has like black people living on film, just like being part of a community. It is a whole weird thing where, you know, Ngagi is the thing about a giant evil ape. Yeah, the, there's uh, a mix of, of some good and some bad stuff for that one. So I, the second big section they, they divide this into is just talking about like sci-fi horror and the absence of the absence of blackness in those settings. Because so many of the, the things around this time in horror in the 50s are about, you know, science fiction. They're about space. They're about uh, experimenting. And, you know, there were no, the people making these movies could not see any way that there would be, you know, black people in those spaces. How, how did you guys feel about sort of like this, this defining of, of this section of the movie? It, it reminds me of the idea that sci-fi and horror can be some of the most imaginative genres, and yet they can't imagine that people who look different could possibly be in them. So it's that stunting of imagination. Oh, exactly. Uh, we talked about Get Out last night, Erica Alexander. Mm. Um, she was on the podcast to Nod, and she talked about how like, working, wanting to participate in these sci-fi stories and how black people want to go to space too. Like that, and yet again, you can imagine a ship that can travel intergalactically, you can travel through time and space, but you can't imagine black people being there too, which is also wild just given like, what is it, Ray Bradbury and the Martian about how there's that one story where Mars is colonized by black people that are escaping racism on earth. And so there are people that can conceptualize this and yet for whatever reason, these folks couldn't does the cyclical thing right in the creation of like of of like black horror and sci-fi literature where they talk about it a little bit in the movies but like the uh in the documentary but the concept of well black people don't do that we don't go there we don't do this thing you know it becomes a running joke in the community and that running joke leads to the kinds of stories where we just go like i suffered through this uh when i was younger as a black writer realizing at one point that I didn't have black people in my stories because everything around me told me we don't do that both on film and also around me you know you know um and it was very much well we don't we aren't in horror stories because horror stories happen in that cabin in the woods and we don't go to cabins in the woods you know like but that obviously wasn't the case because you know Candyman exists you know things like that but those were so rare and in between that it tells you even your attempts to conceptualize us within these genre worlds must be faulty on some level. Yeah, it's it's wild to me that this continues to be 
an issue today, like with, with science fiction and, and fantasy and things like that. And I think like all it takes is, is somebody to like put the lie to it. My, my father-in-law is, is black and like, you know, he was a, a nerdy kid as well, but like he didn't have a ton of that stuff growing up, but like Star Trek, you couldn't pry that from his cold dead hands because like next gen had two black people on it, like regularly, you know, he, he loves him some wharf and some Jordy, like, um, you know, and, and you, you get that one example out there and like people just flock to it and love it and people, and then, you know, the whole system goes, Oh wait, like black people do like this stuff. We've just been assuming they didn't and, you know, not, not doing it. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's some different barriers in it at that point, but, you know, I think that's something that continues to like self-perpetuate this myth that, you know, black people aren't into sci-fi and black people wouldn't be in these situations and, you know, just preaching from like a, from a writer perspective, like, if you continue to not tell stories where people aren't included, then kids reading those stories don't see themselves in them and they don't see themselves as, as potentially part of this thing. And, you know, that's, that's something that, that's got to change. Yeah. They, or a Boris of exclusion, basically. Um, all right. Yeah. And the, the, the third sort of small section of this is uh, monsters are, are analogies for black people, the King Kongs, the creatures of the black lagoon, stuff like that which is, is an interesting way of reading it. Just, you know, there's still not black people appearing regularly in these things. And, you know, they're saying, oh, well, you know, they're, it's not that they're not appearing. They're just, you know, using these, these metaphors for them. How, how do you guys feel about the, the idea of, of all this stuff? I mean, certainly King Kong is an incredibly racist uh, series of, of movies, but how, how did that strike you? I think it was a, it's an interesting argument that I think that, maybe went a little too much uh, with the microscope for it to be uh, more specific, I think, than you can make about all of these movies. By that, I mean that I think the monster is always the other. And the other in this time period is virtually always uh, race-related. But to say that all of these movies have monsters as black people, I think also erases, for example, the anti-Asian sentiment in particular that was happening at the time. And, um, or if you step away from, from race also, you know, anti-communist ideology and various, various things that were happening at the time, where I think that more so than monsters as black people, this general group of movies was doing the hero as white capitalist. And what that means is dependent on the different movies. Now, that said, I grew up in the families that had the uncles and, and cousins that were always like, well, this this monster in particular is supposed to be black. Like, like, look at this this feature or this thing. And I would argue that like a lot of the general's features are pulled from different groups that are notably not white. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously something Lovecraft loves to do I like his stories not the living dead i feel like the the movie kind of deserves like its whole own section has everybody seen night of the living dead here mm-hmm. i haven't That's... and i feel bad for it like i've taught a class on zombies and haven't seen night of the living dead <laughs> i know oh, we've been know, friends for so long and i haven't made you watch this movie listen the whole horror meetup thing kind of fell through eventually <laughs> this is true i mean <laughs> I'd blame it on the pandemic, but that was like four years ago. So it's fine. It's fine. I have I seen it, but it's been a but it's been a while, and it's a really funny thing for me because for a long time I paused watching horror 
because my wife is not big on horror. So like I've seen Night of the Living Dead, but it's been like a bajillion years since I've seen it. And like we're getting to the point where now some of the older ones, even if they're scary, the special effects are old enough that she can watch it. So like I was able to finally watch like Alien in the house with her, you know, and stuff. And like, so we're like moving through. And so she just gave me the okay tonight to rewatch both Demon Knight and Candyman because I was watching the documentary and I'm like, yes. Nice. nice. Has your wife seen Night of the Living Dead? Probably not. Yeah, I, I think like <laughs> Night of the Living Dead is is the first one of of the type of movies that we talk about so much on here that like, yes, it's a scary movie. Yes, there are zombies in it, but it also like has so much more to say than just that but it doesn't stop being a scary movie at any point to like to have that discussion Mm -hmm. and finding the subtle horror of it too of like oh there's a black man alone in a room with a white woman who's like essentially catatonic like our minds in 2021 go in a completely different route than the actual plot of the movie unfolds too yeah and in the end of that movie it's devastating like it's just it makes like the second half of it makes me sick watching it because I know what's going to happen. It's so frustrating because even taking, not to be like, you know, maudlin on mic, but uh, taking it out of a movie scenario, how much of the past like four years have just felt like that? That no matter how much you claw to try to save everyone and to make everyone listen to you and to make, make everyone be okay, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In a weird sense, uh, my ex-academic brain goes directly to comparing it to the beginning of the first Alien movie, right? How how directly tied are those two narratives of, please, just listen to me. If you would listen to me in this scenario, we could survive. Mm-hmm. We, we could make this work. But for him, it ends up not mattering. Whatever, everything he ends up doing, the outside world still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a little deep dive on Night of the Living Dead and the casting, and I'd seen Romero talk about how they picked Dwayne Jones for the lead and how they kind of made it race blind. Um, and apparently Dwayne Jones also made changes to the dialogue in the movie um, because they'd written this as like he was going to be like this brash trucker. And Dwayne Jones was like, I'm going to take it and elevate it. And so created this character with George Romero. And then George Romero was considering rewriting the ending and Jones told him to keep it in. Um, And this is a quote from him from the book, Night of the Living Dead, behind the scenes of the most terrifying zombie movie ever. Um, I convinced George that the black community would rather see me dead than saved after all that had gone on in a corny and symbolically confusing way. The heroes never die in American movies. The jolt of that and the double jolt of the hero figure being black seemed like a double barreled whammy. So like he infused the horror with more horror in there too yeah i think in the exact same way that we needed chris to be saved in get out we needed him to die there Mm -hmm. i don't i love so much of that movie but would it rewatch the same way if it wasn't that sort of dread yeah Mm -hmm. i i think it so much of that movie it starts out as like you're, you're kind of cycling perspectives. You're kind of seeing everybody. You don't know that one person is, is just the protagonist. And by the time you get to that point in the movie of, of Night of the Living Dead, you've been forced to see things through his eyes. And he has been the one that's, you know, clearly been on top of shit the whole time and, and has made it possible for them to survive. 
it does have them to do. I feel like George Romero, you know, for for however it happens, is is tricked, you know, white audiences into sympathizing with this black character, and then like you know, and then the ending happens, and they kind of like they have to face the fact that they're the villains of this story. Whereas like Get Out is not written with that intention. Like Get Out, you are in Chris's perspective the whole time from the beginning. You know, you're you're seeing how weird stuff is and. Jordan Peele also like has been pretty candid about the fact that like this movie is for black people. Like if you're a white person and you enjoy it and you can see, you know, yourself in this story, then good. But like, if you're not, then, oh, well, you know, and I think that's very much the difference between like what, what both the audience is and what the audience needs between, you know, those, those two films at two very different times. Yeah. I think if, <laughs> if you're a white person and you're not aware of, you know, the, the fact that the, you know, police lights coming on, on on Chris at the end there is negative, uh, that he is not about to be saved, then you are willfully ignorant at this point. Uh, so let's let's talk about the uh, black exploitation stuff. We got Blackula and Scream, Blackula Scream in here, both directed by uh, William Crane and starring William Marshall. And, uh, you know, Scream, Blackula Scream has Pam Greer in there as well. Or Pam Greer. Um, Pam Greer, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I got so excited when Pam Greer followed me on Twitter and then realized that she follows everybody. So, oh, well. <laughs> I mean, it still counts. Yeah, it still yeah. counts. Screenshot of that, it still counts. Yeah. I'm pretty sure she's on, what is it, Bless This Mess, the Dax Shepard sitcom. But, like, <laughs> yeah. Which is, it's weird because, like, she's like black royalty, right? And then she's on this, like, white centered narrative about moving from manhattan to a farm in like nebraska like she's like the sheriff of the town very weird Listen, back when she was on the l word like that was like world changing for me like when she played uh like uh the sister on l word and like those conversations and didn't they have like they have like ozzy davis i think as their as their father uh on there uh i want to say i think so i don't remember yeah yep um and it was just I love her so much. I just get hyped anytime I see her anywhere. And you never know where she's going to show up either. Yeah. She just pops in and is like, oh, Pam Greer's here. All right, let's do this. Right. Didn't she play the cop in Jawbreaker? Uh, I, I personally haven't seen Blackula. With that fabulous hair. So I, yeah, I, I haven't seen what... a lot of the exploitation films. And I think I... it kind of comes out of that, like, this makes us look bad, don't watch that kind of yeah. mentality. Too. My attitude is like, oh, like, this I would see Candyman growing up. I might see Tales from the Hood, but like Blackula wasn't for me or my people. That was oh look, there's a black person in it, but like it's still yeah. a story told for white folks. Yeah, like yeah. The, the foot, movies the of that the time. Door. Yeah, the movies of that time that I saw that would kind of like be in that category were not the horror ones. It was like I legit have like the vinyl for Superfly, like you know, like stuff yeah. like like the mm-hmm. Mac. Those were the ones I really saw. Which mm-hmm. was wild because that meant at when they reference the reflection quote at the end, I'd never heard that before because mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it. Um, when when they do the quote like a man has to be able to see himself, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. like I I like I might have heard it, but I I've never heard it in that context. That is that was like such a great moment of black horror in that line that like even if I hadn't just watched this documentary. If I, you just showed me that clip, I'm like, oh, I see everything that they were trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And it's, it's, it's interesting because I think a reason, a lot of the reason you can't find a lot of these movies or people don't see a lot of these movies is like they were made for like two fifty, and, you know, um, they had 50 cents left over at the end. Like it's, you know, they were making them as cheaply as possible to throw them out there to cash in on what they saw as like a trend in, in movies, not just for the horror movies, but a lot of the black exploitation stuff in general, which I think is, is partially why like the stuff that still sticks out that people still talk about like Blackula is, is stuff that, you know, had a black director, um, which boy, Alicia watched part of this documentary with me and she had a good laugh at the like William Crane, a black will direct newspaper thing. <laughs> <laughs> You know, those First, AP style guides weren't always what they were. Yeah, they're, they're still pretty bad. Yeah, William Crane, comma, A Black will direct to, you know, vampire movies. Oh, like, I remember thinking, so a lot of the horror that I've watched is from like the early 2000s on because the internet allowed me to watch many more things and I could afford to send myself to the theater. But like many of these movies, starting with the black exploitation area, going into like the 80s and the 90s, I just haven't seen because I was too young and my parents weren't renting them. And that was how you saw movies like that. And so it's weird that like, there's still those gaps despite being black and loving horror that mm-hmm. I just haven't gone back and done those things yet. So like, yeah. Yeah, the 80s is really where most of my knowledge kind of comes in. Also in part because I think uh, a lot of my horror knowledge uh, started in prose. You know, like it's the sneaking a book and like reading it and then my mother being like, well, of course you had a a nightmare. Like, I don't know what you expected. (laughs) You can't sleep with me tonight. Like, you're just going to have to work that out. Um, Do we have the same mom? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, as a small child, my mother likes sharing a story about how as much as I love horror, if the thriller video came on for a chunk of my life, I would run under the kitchen table and I would not leave until until it was done. Because I would have nightmares anytime I saw that and anytime I saw the Crypt Keeper. So I just was not having it. Because not any of the stories. terrifying, though. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, none of the none of the episodes scared me. It was just the Crypt Keeper and then Thriller, just all of Thriller. Uh, nothing more terrifying than just him turning with the eyes at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Candyman so... is more terrifying, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, when I was that young, I I I wasn't ready for that, but like. That was like, oh, it would just come on TV. And I was a big like fan of that whole era. So I would love the song, but like, nope, had to cover my ears for the Vincent Price part because that would just <laughs> nightmares for a week. You know? <laughs> yep. Could not do it for years. I don't think I was a teenager until I could reliably listen to his laugh and not have a nightmare. <laughs> it's, it's such an incredible testament to Vincent Price, too. Like, yeah. It's so good. <laughs> Yeah, it's the the only one from this group uh, that I, I do actually want to see. They talked a bit about it. Uh, Ganjin has has doing. I want to see it, it too. Yeah, directed by. It's so good. It's so good. And, like, it's it actually on it Shutter. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I watched it last year, and the whole time I was like, "This is an art house film. Yeah. How did they How did they sneak this one in? This is amazing." Um, and then to have Dwayne Jones in there too, and have that little nod, mm-hmm. like you see night of the living dead when you watch this and it's completely different um yeah yeah that one is one i i would have watched already except it's surprisingly long um i've yeah. sat down a couple of times and it's, been like i'm gonna watch this oh no no i don't have that kind of time it's yeah a I, I think the only reason i didn't watch it is because it 
I learned about it in the context of like that B-movie horror world that kind of like made me uncomfortable. And I didn't really understand what it was separate from that. So I just kind of like had it in that category in my head and then was just like, you know, um, but I do want to see it. And I do, I like, I feel like I've seen Blackula before, but I really do want to see it as an adult and kind of recontextualize it, I think, for myself. Um, Just because I feel like as much problematic disaster stuff as there is around it, there's also a lot of stuff that, from every clip and thing I've seen is stuff I want to I want to play in it's messy so let me play in it and like see what I can I can pull out of it yeah and I think this I think horror noir really kind of champions it as as like an unlikely success like as you know this black director getting hired against all odds to do this black Dracula movie and like it actually coming out not only being good but doing well and then, you know, well enough that they let him do a second one, which centers around a black woman as, you know, the, the main protagonist. I felt like Blackula was one of those movies that, like, I haven't seen it personally, but it has been referenced, especially alluded to in, like, a lot of sketch comedy and things that, like, I've seen it so many times. Like, it's one of those, like, family guy style, like, callbacks where it's like, oh, like, I feel like I've, I get it. You've like, absorbed it. <laughs> yeah, you could, you it's could like answer a, a question about it on Jeopardy. Anyway, let's talk about other deep movies like Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde and Blackenstein. These are actually ones I did not know about. Yeah. Like when the, I am. The which title, really Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, is so wild. Because I'm really upset that I didn't write that. Like, it's just, uh, like you didn't even try. Like, I'm sure you, like, Dr. Blackle would have been better than Dr. Black. <laughs> I'm sure the working title was Dr. Black and Mr. Black. And they were like, let's maybe spice it up a little bit. It could have been worse. It could have been (laughs) Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Black, which is really what I would have expected. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) there's so many, so many ideas for this that I, I am not going to say out loud, but yeah, there's just, you can't, you just, I personally, the section of the movies existed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also did not know about Blackenstein, which uh, I was like, how did I, how, how did I not know about Blackenstein? I don't, I don't understand how I didn't know about this movie. Yeah. They, they do talk too about how this carries into a couple of movies. They talk about a little bit later in the movie. They don't really talk about the first purge much later on, but they, they do talk about that a little bit in this section that the idea of like experimentation and, and using black folks as experiments for social or, or medical or, or whatever stuff sort of carries into both that and Girl with All the Gifts, mm-hmm. um, which will come along a lot later. I just read the full summary of Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde. <laughs> and I want to take these last couple of seconds away. Did any of you read the summary for it yet? No. no, no okay. Can we get a dramatic reading? <clears throat> Los Angeles Dr. Henry Pride is an accomplished, wealthy African-American medical doctor working on a cure of, for cirrhosis of the liver, along with his colleague, Dr. Billy Worth. Desperate to create this remedy, Pride conducts unethical experiments on others and himself, which turns Pride into a white-skinned Frankensteinian monster with superhuman strength and invincibility. Pride begins to rampage throughout Watts, killing prostitutes and pimps. After not being able to test his remedy on Linda, Pride goes on a rampage, which results in him being chased down by the police. Cornered at the Watts Towers, Pride attempts to escape by climbing up the towers, which leads to the police gunning him down and causing him to fall to his death. According to Frederick Douglass in Atlanta Daily World, the film was, quote, 
for escapism as fun as quote everything is taken in an extreme and comes off as being comical rather than serious so he was trying to cure alcoholism and that led him to becoming a white man who kills prostitutes and pimps that's a lot to unpack that's a lot the, the, my understanding of like writing professionally is like sensitivity readers exist where you're like hey can you just look over this make sure it's not problematic mm-hmm. and i just like i can't imagine trying to do this elevator pitch let alone having someone read you just it circle it and go no across it like <laughs> <laughs> so i'm sorry did you say that quote was from frederick Douglass? apparently there was there just happened to be an editor uh, like a reviewer whose name also happened to be Frederick Doug- Douglass, who was reporting or in the Atlanta if Daily World. Frederick Douglass is still alive, reviewing <laughs> horror movies, which is oh, yeah. much more. That's actually the sequel to this movie is uh, about that. Frederick Douglass um, just came back to say how bad this movie was. <laughs> oh, I just... and that would be a, a like a zombie biopic, so it wouldn't actually be horror when he writes that. I want that desk. genre yeah. to exist. That mm-hmm. sounds like one of those obscure, really specific Netflix genres. Like, do you want the zombie biopics? Because we've got some. Yep. Uh, there's actually them. a song by Clipping that references this. Um, I will find mm-hmm. when we go to like the hip hop section. I will find the song because it's the song that literally on one of their last their last two albums have been horror themed. Mm-hmm. So like actually like mm-hmm. telling stories. And if you haven't listened to them, there's one in particular about black revolutionaries coming back from the dead and eating people and it's basically like yo if you're not ready for the revolution you're meat like if if you're not ready for this like so essentially they they wrote the song that starts that that is that genre of sweet well using the opening titles for my my zombie biopic nice (laughs) now i do want to say that uh blackenstein is available on tubi right now apparently Uh, so so yeah, like I mentioned before, I've been watching American Horror Story, and we can't let him know this exists. No, there's a moment. <laughs> no, there's a, but there's a moment in season five where Angela Bassett is a '70s black exploitation star, and she stars in the movie Bride of Blackenstein, and there's a movie poster for it on the wall in her house, which that's a movie I would love to watch. Angela Bassett starring in. Yeah, I'd watch Angela Bassett do just about anything. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why we all watch american horror story it's so bad yeah i just love <sighs> the gifs <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh <laughs> if if you want to know black and Sign has nine percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> um all right so uh this is uh, this is the section i think that we have probably a lot more to say about which is the 80s it's it's when i think all of us are born in the 80s right mm-hmm. yes all right yep Want to make yeah, sure well, every once in a while I forget that Ben and Chris are like babies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's where we got. Uh, there's a lot more blind people in horror movies suddenly, but usually they're the first to die, and often they're uh, killed off to just show how strong the monster is. Uh, or also, they can be a sacrificial or magical Negro. They, they talked a lot about how they they lack inner life. They referenced specifically a lot of like the. Uh, Friday the 13th and Halloween's and the craft, um, which is, isn't craft doesn't exactly hold to this, but we did talk on our episode of, of the craft about how like uh, Rochelle does not have parents or a home life or does not exist when white people are not on screen. Which Rachel True men- mentions in Horror Noir, like she got really good at saying, are you okay? In many different <laughs> inflections. <laughs> are you okay? It's so weird. I didn't truly 
when I was growing up, I guess I was both fortunate and unfortunately, I didn't grasp all the lines in her plot. The first time or two that I heard like that line where she says that she doesn't like Negroids, I didn't understand what she was saying the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. Like, I literally didn't comprehend what she was saying. One, because modern movies didn't do that. Like that, just separating the fact that she like said that word, like, <laughs> and yeah. it was like after 1985. You could say that's like vintage racism. Yeah. <laughs> but like the line, the one that, the real line that I didn't get till I was older was the line about her hair. I didn't understand mm-hmm. where she found her hair and thought that someone and was like made like the crack that someone's pubes were in her hairbrush. And then Rachel True talking about how at first she she thought it wasn't enough of a plot. Um, but now watching it older, I'm like, oh, I get it. And then I get really angry. I'm angry about a lot of that movie because um, Nancy and and her, they did not deserve this <laughs> like I get I still get really angry because like nah by like rule of what comes around goes around like her spell completed the circle by getting back at the racist she shouldn't be tormented I don't understand why this happens yeah. it also wasn't even a spell that she cast it was Sarah that did it for her yeah we, we did um, bring that up in the in the other podcast so yeah it's been um, addressed and then Nancy being punished is like the most wild buck wild thing I've ever she ever seen in a movie trauma I was like, take care of her. I was like, wait, so she's being punished for not for healing herself? That no, no. But like that's that's for me, like that was being punished for defending yourself or or reacting to racism. Yeah. And it's it's not any better for Bonnie because like Oh yeah. They're just like Oh, you flirted with that guy. You really you've really gone too far, Bonnie. You've changed. Like, how how dare you get to look at your body and love yourself like that's a step too far but like it's i still love that movie i could talk a, a, like along with that movie i definitely can sing along with the whole soundtrack but it's it's part of that point in time where movies are trying to be so much more diverse and progressive and by doing so completely stick their like foot in their mouths by telling these really horrendous stories with horrendous messages, you know, like even with like Nancy, like you're looking and like, she's, you know, an abused, an abused girl who attacked a, a dude who raped a friend. <laughs> like, you know, like they're held to these monstrous standards. Right. And for that to be one of like the first kind of contemporary times for me of, of seeing like a black girl's horror story, you know, on film, you know, is I think part of the reason why I couldn't comprehend it. It wasn't just like the words used or the subtlety, but that like the the storyline and the punishment was so much mismatched that I must have gotten it wrong. Yeah, and I, I think that's yep. especially rough for Rochelle because she doesn't have any other life outside of this thing in the movie. Like this is all that happens to her is this, you know, this racism. Um, because we don't we don't see what she's like outside of that, and that's. That is definitely like an issue that we brought up as a big problem with the craft. I'd, I'm curious, Danny, have you seen the craft legacy? It's one of those moments where I looked and I went, that looks like it'll be nice for the people that it's for, but I don't know if it's for me anymore. You know, like if I was to see the craft now, I would not love it. So because 
it would mean something so different. So revisiting that specifically doesn't do it for me because there are so many other ways to tell witchy stories. Plus, I none of the early stuff made me feel like I I trusted them with with the queer content that they wanted to introduce. I feel like, weirdly, it is better at handling the, you know, characters of color and the queer content. uh, But somehow in all of that, they forget the plot and the plot just falls apart in that movie. Which They also didn't develop the side characters personal lives outside of being around this one main white character yeah I, so I, it, was, I it, was a, it was a repeat of that failure um which was hard but it's also like we watched it in like a kind of a nostalgic context of like i love the craft and it's deeply problematic so let me watch this new movie that'll probably be similarly that way it was worth um, the what like seven bucks i paid for to <laughs> rent it on amazon <laughs> yeah i got i got that one in the original that i now remember also that I need to rewatch like Halloween and like the, like the Friday the 13th new beginning and Halloween H2O. Like I have a desperate need to rewatch them after watching it. I'm saddened also by the lack of, um, I know it's technically not a black movie, but the lack of, if we're going to discuss hip hop stars in horror movies and we don't get to discuss 13 ghosts, uh, I'm being personally robbed <laughs> because Casting raw digger <laughs> as a nanny for white people is, is galaxy brain. It's a different level. Like, like they sat there. There, there were readings. There were discussions, this and they went. <laughs> and they went. Yes, yes. She is the nanny, and shit. And like, what was it? Shannon Elizabeth is the daughter. Like, it was just so. Isn't and Tony I love that in that movie too. Yes, he's the dad. That's right. Um, oh God. Oh, that movie's so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so uh, weird. I'm obsessed with it uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because I'm obsessed with Matthew Lillard and him as the migraine having psychic is just a real gift to me. But also <laughs> like in the same way that the uh, original movie had the, um, you didn't get to see him, but they had invented backstories. There's an elaborate backstory for every ghost. And a very intense, like, um, design around their backstory, how they did that. And I love the house. The house is so cool. And they also decided that Rod Digga would stand there with, like, Shannon Elizabeth and this kid and be like, yeah, I'm their nanny. I have so many questions. So I don't know how That's they a whole decided. Night. We watched the original 13 Ghosts in, like, the sixth grade in mm-hmm. Charlotte. Like, and it... It was scary. Like, it was, like, there's enough going on. And it's like, what is happening? I can't imagine seeing it in 3D. Like, that's so cool. (laughs) I just, it was a lot. And I remember thinking, like, I'm too young to see this. Mm -hmm. How does this relate to the, you know, education plan of CMS? Like, we're going to get, we're going to get in trouble for this. (laughs) It's, it's funny because you're talking about, like, them, them not talking about 13 guys. I was thinking, like, when they talk about Halloween H2O and they're like, yeah, and they don't. They're like, oh yeah, LL Cool mm-hmm. in it, and I was like, what about and, and? Resurrection that has Buster Rhymes in it? Like, yeah, I was yeah. like, are we? I was waiting for it. I was waiting for that clip because who doesn't want to discuss him and and filming a reality show in a horror movie? Like, yeah, and the fact that Buster Rhymes like actually kicks Michael Myers in the face in that movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Buster Rhymes does like straight up does kung fu in that movie. It's so wild. Or, you know, like, or my favorite, uh, 
especially since they did talk about like the the relationships uh shown on screen which of of black men and white women the fact that they didn't get into house on haunted hill was really interesting to me uh you know like because you get both ali larder and tay diggs as, as the final uh as, as the final people in that if i remember correctly mm. um and it was just like interesting i mean also i was just thinking about you know everything that has been said about ali larder recently and now i just really want to know what that set was like mm-hmm also, I forgot that James Marsters and Lisa Loeb were both in that movie as <laughs> random people. Oh, God. And also that Chris Kattan, back when people knew his name, was in that movie. Oh, boy. <sighs> oh, I forgot what that cast looked like. Yeah. It, um, wildly, the one from this list that pisses me off the most is The Shining. Because, like, I like I was loving that movie at that point, and the Scatman Crothers character is so interesting and like they feel like they're doing so much with him and apparently in the book they do and then the movie's just like let's hit him in the chest with an axe for no fucking reason like how do you do worse with a black character in the movie <laughs> adaptation of a Stephen King movie than in a Stephen King book ding 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 like <laughs> yep yep like they really no. were like you know what king king really used this dude too much <laughs> like and like he he puts everything into that role, you know? Like, I mm-hmm. definitely agree when they were like, I hate saying that this is just, like, the example of the trope because you watch him and he is riveting on screen. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. infuriating. Especially, like, culturally watching, it is so angering to see this man who, as you know that as a character, must have had this big life, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to know what he knows and to have, you know, like like this power and then this and to little survive white kid. working working at that hotel yes for years and years like all the things like he must have power. seen like that would be a tv series like like yeah. stop like stop remaking you know it as a terrible documentary on the sci-fi channel and just give me the years of him working there mm-hmm. you know well, like, like if and you like were gonna all, do it. yeah like a ghost of the week kind of situation mm-hmm. where he defeats yeah. and encounters them but instead yeah. we have this little kid who on the list of little white boys in horror movies from this time who can't act is <laughs> it's really hard to watch that kid up against him because he yep. is doing so much you know and like mm. unlike the others in it who are like are in scenes with him but like there there's supposed to be a disconnect there with the kid so like it's okay that like there's a certain emotional depth that like isn't being received like you want it and you're like this man deserves so much more than everything in this movie is giving him. Yeah, this this movie, that movie straight up made me turn on Stanley Kubrick. Like, because like first, you know, this happened in the movie and not knowing anything about, not not really at that point knowing or, or caring anything about like the history of, of you know, race in, in horror movies. Like that just as for me watching the movie, I was like, no, like that's the most interesting thing going on in this movie is, is this guy. Like, why would you do that? And then the like, the more I learned about that movie, the more I hated it. That like, you find out that like Stanley Kubrick made Scatman Crothers, who's like seventy something years old, do like take after take after take on this stuff, and like that like it, it's just this whole like shitty. The visuals thing. are so important to me 
like in that movie, but it's so difficult to watch. Yeah. Didn't the female lead say that she was basically like traumatized the entire time? Oh, yeah, they tormented. Her- they they yeah. tormented her. That was an incredibly abusive set. Um, and and actually, the kid actor didn't know he was in a horror movie. They never yeah. put him in any spot where he could see any of that stuff. And so right. I'm sure he got very minimal direction on on that. Doesn't excuse yep. his his lack of talent, but like definitely informs <laughs> definitely informs how everyone was treated in in those situations. Yeah, there was a lot of really frustrating. Playing. It makes me think of so one of my all time favorite movies, unsurprisingly, is American Werewolf in uh, London, because I'm very predictable. There's watching that movie. And then I don't know if you guys have watched on Shudder um, the Cursed Sets series, which is brilliant. It's like four mm-hmm. or five episodes of just the movies that were like considered cursed or whatever and like the real story behind it. And it goes into the director's Twilight Zone episode and what actually happened with the helicopter. And you just think about all the things that uh, and it's actually the reason why him and um, Steven Spielberg stopped talking. And like Steven Spielberg was like, I want nothing to do with him after uh, that. And it's like seeing the ways in which like stuff like that uh, or some of the other movies. Um, and you're just like, these people treated people so terribly. And like, we just still like, just like, here's more money. And it's really frustrating when you watch something like Horror Noir and you see these, you know, really brilliant creators who are just like, constantly like when they were talking about demon knight and he had to like fight for j for for jada right you know like he had to fight to have her in it and that movie would be so different if you didn't have jada in it you know like it just wouldn't it wouldn't be oh my gosh right i remember demon knight right but you know all of the people in horror noir still having to like do so much fighting where you're like you you see the abuse on these other on these other sets and it's like why do we not simply give them the, take that money and give it to them the people who are telling these stories and aren't abusing the folk <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah yeah seeing people having to fight for gear and fighting for their actors and fighting for their scripts and even fighting for time to make these movies is infuriating when we see the amount of like b-level trash and terrible stories coming off of sets like we know there can be so much more and i think that's the other thing that's frustrating about watching some of these like not really well-made films too Absolutely. Uh, the, the, I think the only one we haven't talked about in this group was uh, Dawn of the Dead, which, you know, Ken Foray is a big part of this film. Um, have you guys all seen Dawn of the Dead? Mm-hmm. I've seen the 2004 version with like <laughs> oh, Shakai Pfeiffer or whatever. I know, this is my life. Like, Kim, it's, yeah, don't, no. The, the, <laughs> is that, would that be the one by visionary director Zack Snyder? Yes, it is Zack Snyder. Oh, God. It's okay. In a couple yeah. of years, there's going to be a re edit of that movie and you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> you'll know. The Snyder yeah. cut of Dawn of the Dead. Oh. And more, yeah, and- more zombie baby <laughs> in it. <laughs> I think Lord. the 1978 version of Dawn of the Dead is the reason I'm actually into horror too. That was one of the first movies I remember watching with my family. We're a bunch of weirdos. Um, and then to see like a black man as one of the leads in the story is also really great. Yeah. It's an incredible film, like zombie wise, and also being being one of the few like movies that ends in sort of a non-ending but that you're that i'm okay with <laughs> like that you know a, non, like, a non-ending with a lot of like conspiracy around what was actually filmed that did not air well i have a lot of thoughts about this <laughs> that might be a separate podcast episode 
Some, someday we'll get around yeah. to it. Yeah, I, um, I like that. I don't, I don't know if this inspired George Romero to like after Night of the Living Dead to do more satire based work. But I feel like I'm, I'm going to go ahead out on a limb and guess that um, Dwayne Jones also helped inform how George Romero wrote the script for this one too. Like making making his characters a little a little more developed and a little stronger and a little smarter. All right. the The next sort of section is is they're talking about the Reagan White Flight suburban horror movies, uh, like Oh God, Serpent in the Rainbow, and Poltergeist, Nightmare, and Halloween. Um, some of which are, are genuinely genuinely good movies, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of nothing in some of them too. Exposure to horror most started with Goosebumps, and then just kept going that way but like in terms of movies like i remember poltergeist being that movie that one night during a storm it happened to be on tv and no one stopped me like everyone was asleep uh and that was one of the first big mistakes i've made with a movie that and like nightmare nightmare especially i think for me the freddy movies have always hit particularly hard again because it's less about what's on screen and more like i think that the franchise like horror movie characters that last and are effective to me are the ones where it doesn't actually matter whether or not you're scared by what they're doing on screen because it's baked into their storyline that whatever would scare the crap out of you is what they would do you know right Mm -hmm. yeah Um, the characters have a life outside the movie yeah in fact that's is why also as a writer like new nightmares remains one of my favorite freddies (gasps) people like i'm like anyone who's like i don't like it i was like you don't write do you it's profoundly <laughs> underrated. Yeah, I'm I remember like, watching that and it was like, this was released three years too early and this is why no one thinks it's genius. But, yeah, yeah, so this one is they're doing a movie. Oh, yeah. wow. And so it's, it's a mega meta. The image yeah. of her with the kids sitting on the floor reading the script like sticks with me. Mm-hmm. It's such a good visual and it's just, it's a meta story that like is one of those, more so than The Shining for me, is the horror of writing and creating. Mm-hmm. And like has stuck with me, like mm-hmm. hardcore, um, because I'm like, oh, that's the one that's about my brain, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. um, that one, and you know, the the um, is it two? That is the is it two or three? That's the gay one. Two, two, two yes. Yeah. Uh, I love the documentary about how everyone except one person knew that it was gay, and they were just like. We're just not going to tell them that this is like, the gayest <laughs> thing we've ever done. Uh, and they're like, yeah, I guess. Does he really not know how gay this is? Yeah, I had no clue. No clue. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Carry on. It's fine. Yeah. But, you know, and then, of course, you know, you got Dream Warriors, which is just nothing in that movie in and of itself is scary. Zero. Nothing. But the concept of everything that happens in that movie is terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like that's what's always funny to, to me is also then you're watching it and you're like these movies are hysterical like they don't even try to hide how comedic they are mm-hmm. but like as funny as they are and as much as like the jokes land you're still like why am all is all I'm remembering how terrifying this is afterwards like my thing with that is like Freddy is campy as hell right like he yes. mm-hmm. like laughs at his own jokes and they're always super corny but for Tons me of puns ties in the Candyman it's like the the horror isn't what you're seeing on the screen it's like you said it's like the he would do something different for me like my nightmares where Freddy appears it's the you have sold me on the premise and that's what's terrifying the Mm -hmm. fact that like I have I have bought into the story that this figure exists and he would you know 
show up in my dreams as something, you know, couture for me, (laughs) (laughs) which is not what I want, but also personalized nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, it's funny because like like with Freddie for um, not to go all superhero on me, a good Freddie movie feels the same as like a good Deadpool story to me in that what's scary is that they have the time and energy to do the jokes because none of this bothers them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, yeah. that's why the jokes land is because, you know, with Deadpool, it's he's cracking these jokes, but like he's doing some wild shit. And what's scary there is that he thinks it's hysterical. Yeah, it's so it's, casual. It's so it's so much sca- like creepier or weirder than him being serious. And that's the same thing with Freddie. Every joke makes what he's doing more her- horrific because it's all shits and giggles to him. Yeah, if you what know? he wanted to do was kill you, he would. The movies would be five minutes long. Yeah. Like Freddie is interested in torturing like, and tormenting people while doing a stand-up injury, routine. Right? Like, yeah, I love horror and I love bad jokes. I would hate to be eviscerated. And the last thing I hear is it like it looks like dad stripes on your shirt. Like it's like I don't want that. Like it's pretty good. <laughs> your last, the last thing you hear is that bit where he comes out of the TV. Like no. <laughs> Like, I'm only laughing because it's happening to other people and not to yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, yeah, it makes it a lot easier to imagine that figure in your home mm-hmm. or at your job, like less than like, okay, this creepy monster that is evil all the time and only lives in darkness. It's like, no, this dude's going to show up like while you're in the shower and while you're brushing your no. teeth. It's the vulnerability. Like, you, yeah. no one is with you in your dreams. No one is with you when you're in the bathroom. And that's why yeah. Freddy and Candyman are terrifying. Like, <sighs> these yeah. are things you can't avoid, yeah. right? Baked into their mythology are, is, is you cannot avoid them. You know, like, I can avoid Jason. I'm not mm-hmm. going to be in situations where, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, this, you know, getting dirty camp. at a camp, at a summer camp, you know, I will just yeah. simply stay my ass at home and, and have a slushy, you know, yeah. like, but no, and like, as disastrous as uh, the movie starring my queen Kelly Rowland was like, um, okay, Freddie versus Jason is still better than Jason X, but still, um, which stars half the cast of like the Gene Roddenberry Andromeda series, and it's real weird, but like, you can't avoid sleep. Eventually, it's, Mm-hmm. sleep you will fall asleep mm-hmm. it's not even like you stay awake till you die you stay awake until you are forcibly put to sleep by your body right like i was someone who actually suffered from one of the reasons freddie's so terrifying to me i suffered from ex- really bad nightmares like for years where like i realized that like i couldn't eat too close to bed or like just hands down i had like waking sleep like waking nightmares where like I would still be dreaming, but walking around my house and like half aware. And like, so like, I'm like, Freddy could be everywhere. So of course I had nightmares about Freddy, you mm-hmm. know? And if you have a nightmare about Freddy, your brain tells you it must be real. <laughs> yep. No, so like the whole, I've always had trouble sleeping. Like my brain is just, it never stops going. It takes me a long time to fall asleep. I often get like four or five hours tops. The movie I was thinking of was A Nightmare in Elm Street from 2010. And it's, it's awful. It's like a 15 on Rotten Tomatoes. But the concept that they introduce is like these kids try and stay awake with like epinephrine and caffeine and all this stuff. And so they start having That's the one with Kelly Rowland, right? 
I possibly, I don't think so. I'm remembering two white kids like running through a grocery store. So. <laughs> okay, no, because uh, that's basically describing the the also the plot of Freddy versus Jason, yeah. where uh, they basically do these take these meds to like stay awake. Kelly Rowland is also in it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the only reason I ever remember this movie exists because of is because of my love of her, um, <laughs> and every yeah. disastrous mistake she's made. Emmanuel, I think you're talking about the remake of Nightmare on Yeah, History. no, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, okay, cool, cool. The re- but, like, they introduced the idea of, like, the micronauts or whatever, and, like, that happens to me. Like, sometimes I just, like, nod off briefly, but the thought that, like, Freddy can appear for a few seconds just long enough to, like, hurt you but not kill you is terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And time doesn't work the same, so maybe you had a micronap, but exactly. he can make you feel like that micronap's been, around, been like, 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, like... And I'm like, isn't it enough? Especially for black characters. Like we just, we got enough. It's okay. Like that's also the thing. I feel like as much, one of the reasons I don't really want newer nightmares ones, aside from the, uh, like Freddy uh, movies, it's not just because I think that they, they've actually, I think gone like too edgy for me. Like, I'm just like, okay, you, you're kind of like, he's he's less unique. The more, the, like the more you give in, it's, I don't want to experience what that movie honestly looks like right now. Mm-hmm. The nightmares that Freddie kills marginalized people on. No, I'm good. Like I could not watch a, an honest version of like a newer version of those movies. Yeah. But I, I can watch Candyman 20 times. Well, uh, speaking of Candyman, that's the, the next thing on the list here is we, we get into the nineties and uh, we have Candyman mm. Tony Todd is another one of those guys that I could just listen to talk all day long. Like mm-hmm. he's he's such a he's such a interesting and weird looking guy that like I think Allie, you were the one that I had the discussion with, and I was like, can you imagine Tony Todd just wearing plaid? Like And then I sent you pictures of him wearing plaid. I'm gonna go look at I'm very sorry. Like, he's is- like in very casual, casual outfits. Um, has anyone seen the remake of Night of the Living Dead where he stars as the main character? I have not. Um, so Tom Savini, who did special effects on the 1968, no, he did not do special effects on that. He did special effects on Dawn of the Dead, um, got to remake the movie with George Romero's blessing, but have not seen it. I think it may have been a TV movie. Uh, I am interested now. Mm-hmm. This, yeah, I feel like horror noir just kind of made a list of movies that I, I absolutely want. Exactly. It was like, and, and it was a very gentle reminder of like, you haven't seen everything in this genre and there's much more to be discovered. Like there's this rich treasure trove of things to find and not just the classics like we had mentioned. I really yeah. like the editing in this section. Well, so liked and also wrote in my notes and like all caps, these people are wild. Like they had the whole, they talk about Candyman and they have the super cut of all of the different speakers saying it. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I still, like, I I'm still a- to this day, like, <laughs> Bloody no. Mary never did it for me, but that nope. one does. Yeah. No, I'm a grown ass man. I am not about to go into any mirror in the dark and say Candyman three times. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that y'all are just willy nillying saying it in a dark theater, mind you, like I'm just like, what are we doing here? What are you showing off? Well, like I thought Tony this was Todd's by already black there. It's fine. Yeah, you you know where he is. <laughs> but that He's like cool. that really, I I pulled a lot of horror based pranks on people growing up. But like that was the one that I could never finish. Yeah, I could get two in, like and then I was like, you know what? I don't need to be in this room anymore. I'm good. Yeah, I'm just gonna I don't turn have anything around. To prove. Like, I'm I good, like y'all. being alive. Mm-hmm. I liked. Uh, I wrote my notes. Uh, I guess it was serious. We talked about the whole. This is how you can tell that Candyman's made from the mind of a white person. That like he's like 
falls in love with this white lead and is, you know, just completely obsessed with her despite all of like the reasons he has to be furious at anyone white and just that whole backstory. Um, I love this and, movie. I've only ever seen it once. <laughs> and then she's, she's what, like an anthropologist that keeps going to the projects to do her research. Who yeah. I'm really, really excited about the reimagining. Oh my gosh. Finally going to be released. Just watching the trailer, I was like, this is the it movie took, we were supposed to have. Exactly. The trailer took my breath yeah. away. Mm-hmm. Like yep. it is so, so rare to see a trailer where I, I was like putting together the symbolism in it, right? It was, yes, I did it with, um, with us, but it, it, it was something different with this one, you know, the, the whitewashed church. And I went, oh, you're doing, so we're doing this, you know, like, like this is what we're doing. The casting is perfect. You know, like I saw the trailer, I see the trailer and I still get chills. You know, I'm just like, I'm ready for it so mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Cause I had forgotten watching Candyman the first time, which, you know, I didn't do until a handful of years ago. I think when I was in college, and I remember being confused by that movie because I was like, why is this guy haunting the projects? Like, why isn't this guy haunting the white people? Like, right. because mm-hmm. this doesn't make any sense. Like, I, I don't know if it's growing up on comic books and ghost stories and stuff or like, oh, yeah, like I was killed horribly. So now I haunt the people that are responsible for it all the time. Whereas this guy right. was like, I was killed horribly. So now I'm going to haunt my own descendants and like people who are dealing with the same kind of shit today. It was like, yeah, well, I guess. it's it, that's where it feels very much like the craft too of like, hey, we're going to have a plot about race and we're going to go right up to the line of maybe dealing with it in a way that's effective and good storytelling. And then we're going to fuck it up. They could have landed it better on tying him to the place, like to the exact spot, you mm-hmm. know, and I don't think it, it lands quite right because like, I would accept the like the cyclical tragedy of him harming his own people by being tied to that spot. Mm-hmm. But like they didn't really like nail that landing. Or inciting them to put harm on other people. Like, yes. Right. Like, carry out my vengeance kind mm-hmm. of situation. Yeah, it just, yeah, it didn't make any sense. And then, it, yeah, very, very cringy to see her, you know, learning how to navigate the projects when she goes to do her research and yeah, centering Virginia Madsen, who was like the whitest possible choice for that, is mm-hmm. I don't know. It's 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 maddening just from a storytelling perspective, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's actually one of those rare roles where uh, I do think it would have, and I never say this, it would have been interesting to cast a light skinned mixed girl for that role. Oh shit! That yeah, that the just... descendant is mixed. I think tells a more interesting story, and I would not. I think there are writers who could have made it a really interesting horror story involving passing and like and colorism and things like that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm like rewriting the script. Yeah, like it, it just she works. Has, she has divorced parents. One lives in the projects and one lives in mm-hmm. the nicer condos. And okay, well, Jordan Peele. No, wait, keep talking. I like more about this. <laughs> but it just—it just makes a taste of it, you know. And because especially then when you have this, the protagonist. It is. It would be a great story of this protagonist who is part of both of these worlds, right? Mm-hmm. You, you, you have the the explicit line of the projects and the white folk, and and her, you know, it being a thing of 
because her parents live so close they do the on and off again like every two like two weeks during when she was a kid you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. or um, she goes to a school in, mm-hmm. in the nicer part of town because she lives with her white parent enough and yep. the kids that are the kids that she lives near in the projects make fun of her for it like the horror of liminality mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and then yeah. they're also talking and like i was a a a scholarship kid at like one of those like fancy schools and like I think about sitting there and silently kind of having to suck up the fears that white students have about what the projects are and what they think you fear like mm-hmm. you know this constant conversation about like them of uh, them assuming that you're afraid of getting shot or blah 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 and like as a joke I but like not really a joke I would always be like nah my both my parents grew up here if anyone pulled a gun out around me, like their friends, they're like the old heads, their friends definitely would have been like, not like I would walk around and people be like, oh, that's, you know, so-and-so's kid chill, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not a thing, <laughs> you know, like for like, like for a lot of the people who live there, it's just who, where you live and like playing with that, uh, this outside fear of what the projects are, therefore distracting from the fear of Candyman, you know, like that, mm-hmm in and of itself is, you know, the seeds are there for that story. But by having like a Barbie white, you know, lady lead, like you kind of like, you you don't get to really get in that because she's not of the world that she's in, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think to paint it as that like grand romance too that ends in violence, like there, there could have been something way more nefarious than that of like she did it in mm-hmm. order for him to get attacked and the vengeance is way more more clear and visceral yeah it's swing and a miss and i'll still watch it i mean i still love that movie <laughs> but it like it doesn't you keep know. tony Todd from being fucking phenomenal <laughs> exactly and yeah, nothing but, you know nothing 20... can except for plaid <laughs> <laughs> listen if he did Candyman voice in that plaid you would still be like i'm so sorry <laughs> you're gonna, gonna have nightmares like, about pajamas will keep me safe from Candyman. <laughs> Man, I just, the one thing this documentary was missing is that I did not get to experience Tony Todd and Keith David talking to each other in yeah, the documentary. Yeah. I kept wanting I don't, it. I feel like their sound people were like, we can't we put can't. them in the same room. Like, it's, it's too good. Nothing too will good. ever sound good again. Well, literally, how do you balance that against everyone else's voice? Like, then. <laughs> and microphone and the brains will miss. Yeah, we're done. Also, it's funny because, um. I don't know how much uh, any of you play video games, but uh, big Saints Row fan. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, where Keith that David plays Keith David. Yes, Keith David plays Keith David. <laughs> literally for a they live joke. Yeah, literally, literally. So when they, you have that whole chapter of you have to save each person from their nightmare, and his nightmare is being stuck filming they live over and over and over again. And then you get Roddy Rowdy Piper as a summon from it. Oh. And then they just do a a bunch of Mass Effect references. And I'm like, oh, you're just, you guys just wanted to clown on They Live. And I respect that. (laughs) I was watching another documentary about 80s horror that Mm -hmm. Keith David's in. And he talked about filming They Live. And he was like, the fight scene. And then they cut to, you know, like pieces of the fight scene that's like, what, 25 minutes long. He's like, it was the best thing I've ever done. It's the safest I've ever felt. I had so much fun doing it. I'm like, Keith David is this underrated He's... component of John Carpenter's best films. Like, 
except for Halloween, he wasn't in that. But yeah. like the thing and they live, where like I would really encourage. I'll wait for the recommendations, but like to talk about he, like watching. He also him voices the- over some random true crime documentaries. Uh, mm. So there was a short lived one called City Confidential that had two narrators over time. But like the second I heard him speak, I was like, ah, you've you've changed. Uh, and it was like the first half of the episode would be about the history of the city and then an iconic crime mm-hmm. that like was tied into the city in some way. And it was just, I mean, I love true crime, but that was a favorite because I could just listen to Keith David tell me stories. I was like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, literally Keith David's voice is like, it doesn't matter what I'm watching or playing or whatever, like the second his voice clicks on, I'm like, okay, so you guys are serious about this shit. All right, mm-hmm. let's go. <laughs> Yeah, you lean forward. I'm ready. <laughs> Have you heard the deleted dialogue from Mass Effect 3? There was the, the conversation was actually twice as long, the last conversation between his character and Commander Shepard, and it's online and I like cried. It was just I'll have to look it up. Yep, it's it's all like the you maybe if we had lived like Shepard, I think you would have made a good dad or whatever. And I'm like, no, Keith David, stop it. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Um, like, I don't know if I would have been able to physically finish the game had they kept it in because I was just like a mess of emotions. Um, but he makes everything better, mm-hmm. including this already great documentary. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So we're ta- talking about Candyman. Uh, has anybody seen Death by Temptation? No, no. but now I have to. <laughs> yeah. It's- I have to find and like watch it with some people and just stare in shock. I've seen it on it's it's on some streaming service or was back during Halloween. I never got around to it, but um, yeah, it, it's apparently a whole like you know morality play thing. This you know guy who wants to be a preacher comes to the city to hang out with his buddy and meets a girl who's the devil, and <laughs> you know, like you do that old story. Did I miss who the director was in the movie? Because I need you to know that it was directed, produced, written. And starring James Bond the Third, and that must have gone over my head. Yeah, also, they, they talk about him a little Samuel bit. L was in here. I registered Kadeem Hardison, but like this is just yeah, Kadeem Hardison looking full on like Kadeem Hardison. Yep, this looks like he stepped <laughs> off of the world onto this. Uh, yeah, but... I think they show a clip of Samuel L. Jackson for like a moment. Yeah, but I feel like they probably didn't want to tease that too much since he's not being featured in the documentary. Yeah, because then you'd remember that he's yeah. like not in it. Mm-hmm. Man, when I think of any sort of almost horror with Kadeem, I just think of like he was in Beyond Two Souls, that video game, like uh, Page and uh, William Defoe with Elliot Page and William Defoe, and uh, the game is buck wild and incredibly problematic. But his scenes are all good, except that he is in fact the the uh, mentory black nice black dude. But it's okay because every other adult in that movie in that game is a monster. Um, but I did not know that movie existed, and I can't believe it's real. Yeah, it, like, it's, like it feels like the movie that would be a fake trailer in another comedy. That's exactly what I was gonna say. <laughs> it feels like a f- the the fake other movie that you know didn't actually get made, but that they talk about in a different movie. Uh, I can't, I can't see him. I can't see Kadeem Hardison now without thinking about Casey Undercover because my <laughs> my daughter was really into Casey Undercover, and I I just remember like her watching. There's an episode of Casey Undercover where like they do a straight up uh, different world reunion, and 
like the, they end up like quoting back and forth some sort of Dwayne Whitley line to each other and like my wife freaking out and my daughter just being like <laughs> what is going on like I don't understand I also just discovered somehow I didn't realize that Kadeem Hardison was in The Crow Stairway to Heaven which means I need to watch that show again I mean I always need to rewatch. uh the crow stairway to heaven because i have an obsession with that entire highlander era of tv but um <laughs> when he gets emotional his nails get painted black he was the skull cowboy oh boy that's why i don't work my mind was just blown <laughs> they had kadeem hardison play the skull cowboy in the crow tv series and i was not ready for that oh i still haven't, i haven't actually seen eve's bio that's on oh, it's high on my list Okay, so it is not like any other movie listed here. Like literally no other movie they mention in this resembles uh, Eve's Bayou. So much so that it is like the movie that's that's in here that like literary snobs don't consider horror in a certain sort of way. Mm -hmm. Because like it is like it's weird because before I saw it, though both the way it was advertised and the way people talked about it, I didn't know that it was like a genre horror movie because they, they treat it as like, like a drama, you know? So, so, I mean, so it, it, it has a different feel. Um, it's very upsetting. Uh, not, not having seen that, it seems a lot like uh, Beloved in that respect. That like, it is, there, like, there Beloved is, is technically a ghost story, but like yeah. people don't it, call it's it It's got that. that like Southern, that Southern Gothic uh, like, like history vibe to it um but it is a really upsetting story about like family and secrets in a really interesting way and it especially when you look at who the daughters were and what their careers become it's a very interesting like one of those moments of oh that director and casting director knew that they had something on their hands you know like the, like one of those movies you encounter and you're like, oh, every single one of these young folk <laughs> like yeah. did something. Also, it's got Lynn Whitfield, Debbie Morgan and Diane, uh, Diane Carroll in it. And that alone yeah. is a reason to see a movie. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Lynn Whitfield in that movie is like the archetype for a Lynn Whitfield character. All Lynn Whitfield characters come from this, just everything she does. Also wears that, that polka dot dress is still one of my favorite costuming choices. Yeah, that's that's also one of, I, I think it might be the the only like currently out movie that they talk about in this that is directed by a black woman. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons I think it, it feels so different. Yeah, um, and it, it's so like, I, I feel like they talk about this a little bit in in the end of this film that like we're starting to get more more stuff that's directed by women and people of color and it's you're starting to see more you know black women in in directing roles prominently but like this movie is so far before that timeline wise it's it's wild now that we've talked about that let's talk about tales from the crypt demon night <laughs> which uh, is, is directed by ernest dickerson and this is this is so, it's so wild that this movie is any good because Tales from the Crypt is such a like mixed bag of kind of bro-y horror stuff. And it shouldn't be good. Like when you watch yeah. it, there's a part of you that's like, this shouldn't be good. No line that Billy Zane should says in that movie should be good. And yet it's like, 
there's something very Freddy about how he delivers every line. Yeah. That's, that's He's a that's crazy thing. dude. Yeah. You're like, you cast Billy Zane doing what now? Like, all right, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess Ernest Dickerson, like, between that and the casting of, of Jada Pinkett Smith in this, like, he knew what he was doing, clearly. And it's so, it's so ridiculous. And I love it so much. I haven't seen it in so long. And like the second it came up, I immediately was just like, oh my gosh, I have to watch it again. I miss it so much. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, that, that's one I'm, I'm going to have to rewatch. I haven't watched in a long time. Um, they, they do, I mean, we've talked a lot about hip hop horror stuff already, but uh, the one thing they mentioned in here and the section that we haven't talked about is Bones, which is another Ernest Dickinson or Ernest Dickerson film with uh, with Snoop Dogg playing the ghost of a pimp drug dealer. I guess he's he's good man in his community, but also a criminal, a very like, I don't know, very Snoop Dogg part, I guess. I, I haven't actually seen Bones. so I've um, only seen it once and that was a million years ago. Oh, Bianca Lawson was also in that. Okay. No, that uh, was one of those that like, I remember seeing like a trailer for it without like, I don't know how I would have an opportunity to see this movie and then once I was of the age where I could see it myself, then completely forgotten about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what I always think of when I think of this movie uh, is Def Jam Fight for New York. <laughs> because... Okay. So a final boss in that is not his character in Bones, but it might as well look exactly like it. He plays a villain called Crow. Uh, okay. If I remember Snoop the Dog name... Of- the Crow. Uh... Yeah, Snoop Dogg as Crow. Like, that's his the villain name. And he's like, if I remember correctly, the, the final fight. And it's just, I, my brain doesn't separate them. <laughs> like, at all. Um, Do you think it's intended to be like a, hey, we can't afford to license this, but we want you to know, like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that this I is mean, totally the guy from Bones. Like, it's the same person. It's the same character. Or we designed it's, this with the intention of doing this, and then they wouldn't let us do it. And so we... Yeah, like, there, there's anyway. definitely a vibe of, like... Oh, that, like, the Imbison thing from Street Fighter? Yeah, just just this kind of... I loved this game growing up. Uh, we would fight about which rappers we got to play. I, I but, remember feeling like this this game was indecipherable to me. Like, no, it, like it, it was nonsensical, but it had good music, and oh, yeah, we got to, like, play as our favorite rappers, so we were just like... Do we know how to play? No, not at all. Zero clue what we're doing. There were combos, but who knows? Who knows? I remember one of those games I like, had the, the demo system. Up. Yeah, and like I, I didn't know half the like rappers who were in the the game. It's it's wild because it it's you know it's headlined by a handful of like Def Jam guys that you know, like Stoop Dog, and then there's also a lot of guys like Freeway in there. <laughs> There's, I mean, literally the Wikipedia page for him says Crow makes his first appearance in the storyline after a hero defeats Ice-T in Club 357. So like, that's, that's (laughs) where this game is. And really, I deserve a sequel. When am I going to get another version of this game? It's wild Um, that there's not. I think there was a second one, but it's just been a very, very long time. I remember there being another one. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Uh, so we're, we've caught up to like relatively current time, the, the new generation of stuff. Uh, we already talked a little bit about Attack the Block, but that is a fucking fantastic movie. Oh, so good. Yeah. John Boyega is like a, a revelation in that movie. He hadn't really done much before that. And he like, 
he feels like a star in that movie. Mm-hmm. Well, and also all the stuff they do with like the London slang and like it is a mm-hmm. very clear, it is the dialogue is steeped in the dialect that these kids and these other folks are speaking. And my friends and I walked around going like, allow it for like two oh, weeks afterwards. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> also for me, like, I I link this because of location, like setting with Candyman to a certain extent. But what was really important to me was it took place in the projects. It talked about class and economics. The Mm -hmm. projects itself was not an was not the enemy. It was like the projects were not an antagonist. Right. It was where they lived and it was the fact of their world. and, And they were comfortable in their world to a certain extent. There was still the issues of class there, you know. But it wasn't, oh, you're in a project's hallway. That in and of of itself makes this depressing, right? It was no, they lit up those hallways during those those chase scenes, you know? Mm -hmm. They they it looked so much like the projects I grew up grew up in, right? But like that wasn't in and of itself a negative in the movie. It was just their environment. Well, it's like home turf, right? Like so much of the reason they're successful is that like they have an intimate knowledge of this community, this these buildings, how these different systems work. That the you know the village. It, it was a strength, which yeah. it was a strength which you never get. Like no, it's I just like it's just a thing that doesn't happen. Vampires versus the Bronx really wanted to be this movie and like yeah. couldn't do it. Like I I love that movie. I love I it, but it's a Mero's little too cute. A good dude, yeah. and it's it just can't quite do it. Even with the like commentary of the whole gentrification of the Bronx and like you know these it is this force that's coming through, but it just, it can't. So much of this movie is like steeped in just the culture of that and just this, the, that I, th- I think for identity. me, as much as I loved uh, like Vampires versus the Bronx, part of the issue is that it holds too true to the tropes uh, and structure of the 80s movies it's trying to emulate. And that's why it can't. Uh, you know, even the ways that they interact with the girl, right? Like, like things like that, mm-hmm. that make, that try to impose the 80s suburban world onto the Bronx uh, in, in, how, in how they function. And I think that was one of the things that kind of didn't get it to push all the way to that kind of like steeped in its culture sort of, right. sort of vibe, you know, because some, some of that structure does not work in the Bronx, like and and you feel it like even if you don't know the Bronx you feel a little bit like this feels a little forced right or this this movie is too urban for that to happen you know Mm. like um as much as I love it and I need to watch it again so I can quote it some more uh well and to me it's also just the idea that like they're good horror comedies right and typically mm -hmm. it's finding the right balance between the two where at times you are suspensed and then at others you're kind of laughing along um vampire first in the bronx seems to be want to do more comedy and isn't as funny as it's trying to be whereas like parts of attack the block just absolutely slayed me like i could not Mm -hmm. stop laughing but i would not call that movie a comedy i don't remember it as a comedy like it's like a thriller it's like a sci-fi action horror thing um despite all of its comedic you know moments it is not that at its core yeah, I think it's got a better sense of pacing, you know, like, so it knows when it needs a joke, yeah. as opposed to, oh, it wants to make a joke. It's like, no, you've got a beat here where we need to either break the tension, or the joke will lend to what's happening, you know. 
the jokes never seem to kind of like turn a corner away from the storyline. And a lot of the the stuff that is funny in Attack the Block is like not jokes, it's physical stuff. It's, you know, the their interactions and things like that. Um, yeah, and a lot of it else. Like, even though he's not being funny for most of it, he's the serious one. Like John Boyega's charisma carries so much uh, so much stuff in that movie. Um, it's just his, the sense of power and leadership that he has when he walks on screen in that movie mm-hmm. is there are not a lot of actors who come out the gate swinging like that. Like, you know, like he walks in and you're like, oh yeah, he's in charge. Like He's a baby in that movie. Yeah. Like... <laughs> but he's he literally so has that looking. presence. He has that presence where anytime someone in that movie doesn't listen to him, you're like, he could be telling you to put bananas in your shoes right now. And I don't understand why you're not just accepting that he knows this place better than you do. Like, like he just has that presence. And like, I just loved watching him get to use it, you know, Mm -hmm. like especially watching some of his more mainstream stuff and then going back and rewatching that. And like, sometimes you just get angry because you're like, and that sometimes happens with a lot of like the the horror movies where like you see the difference between what they've done there, you know, and then you're like the mainstream movies are not using their their, you know, the entire spectrum of what they can do. Like mm-hmm. like give like give them a script that lives up to this, you know, like <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh they they also have the girl with all the gifts on here, which I actually haven't seen. I I I've read that one but not seen it. Yeah, I haven't um, seen it. Yeah, I haven't My seen understanding it yet. Too is that so in they show it in horror noir, the main character, the girl, she's like spoiler, she's like a zombie. In the novel, she's got there's some a gifts. Sort of, yeah, but to like in the novel, girl split, and she has all, gifts. All <laughs> well, in the novel, the girl, the protagonist is white and the teacher is black, and so it's this huge thing where like making that choice is a really interesting one to sort of make the black character as the center and also have this duality but um yeah it's one of those i just haven't gotten around to yet but i remember really thinking the novel was fascinating yeah i remember when it came out i had assumed it was another one of the girl with uh movies along with dragon yeah. tattoo and all those things and i was like oh it's <laughs> not you know what? the dragon tattoos i forgot because it was i i think it was originally published in his uh, uh as mr and not as mike mm-hmm. that is mike carey yeah like hellblazer mike carey Felix Castor. Yeah, Felix Felix Castor, you mean the best man I really am sitting here and I'm going to uh, pretend I'm not writing John Constantine right now when I totally yeah. have two <laughs> paragraphs about why my yeah, army jacket is better than a trench coat. He literally writes that in army his book. Army jacket where he carries a like penny whistle with him. No, my son's name is Felix and I'm kind of hoping he starts going by fix at some point. Like... <laughs> um one thank you for knowing those books um because i find other mike carey fans and they don't know those books it's so good mm-hmm. um so much but fun. yeah uh, the world yeah, building like, in that novel series is a lot of fun now i'm like super need to go back and read it because i'm like he wrote hellblazer and lucifer i mm-hmm. and and like crossing midnight i gotta um that's some of my favorite work um Anyway, I found a connection to Hellblazer. We need to change the topic because I will talk about Hellblazer for the rest <laughs> of my life. <laughs> all, all the things Hellblazer is, it's not black. So um. I'm working. I'm working on a novel. Okay, <laughs> give me a second. I literally am working on a story that's like the basic pitch is just that he's black and from New York, and that's that's what I got. 
but like I constantly think in a lot of these movies, like this movie's okay, but like the easy way to make it slightly better should just put a person of color in the lead because everything that brings to the role and how it changes all these interactions would be way more interesting mm-hmm. than this, you know, disposable generic whatever person you've chosen to put in there. Like yep. just put Kelly Rowland in there. Exactly. <laughs> Kelly Rowland and DMX and everything. Yes. <laughs> Um, just every every movie I'm going to watch for like the next two weeks, I'm going to be like, but what if it was Kelly Rowland and DMX? The Shining and DMX is Jack. <laughs> no, I don't like that at all. Kelly, That's Kelly, actually terrifying. Kelly Danny Tor. There's there's very little transition between normal DMX and Jack. <laughs> like it's just like oh, just have a slightly bad day. <laughs> But we're gonna the crow Lazarus it, and it's just him trying to write his next album. See, this <laughs> movie writes itself. <laughs> oh no! Oh, I, we've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, uh, so I guess let's talk about uh, Get Out because that's that's the last thing on this list. That's the culmination of this documentary is is Get Out. Emmanuel I just talked about it last night, so uh, for hours. <laughs> hours um you have nothing left to say like that's not true (laughs) it's it's perfect like Mm -hmm. get out Mm. like everything is connected everything means something it's incredibly like efficient like there's so many horror movies are very shaggy and like they have a lot of like plot stuff that doesn't make sense things that don't quite work uh, actors that are not actors, like everybody in Get Out is is great. Daniel Kaluuya is amazing in that movie. Mm-hmm. And that there's so many like things that you don't know are a thing when you're watching the movie until you get to the end of the movie and you're like, oh no, like that is this. And that's how this all ties together. And like nothing feels like that when you're watching it. They don't feel like, oh, I'm giving you hints of what's really going on. It feels like, natural well-made you know dialogue and then you go back and it's like oh there's so many like things tying together here no jordan peele talked about it in the documentary but it seems very much like this is a movie like by us and for us like from the opening as soon as you hear those first few notes of Redbone, you're like oh this is this is a black movie and like you i think we talked a little bit about how it focuses on just being told from Chris's perspective. There are very few shots in this movie that leave Chris or Rod behind and focus on someone who is not black. Like it's all just, it sticks with them and focuses on their experiences and trying to figure out what's happening here. Like, I love it, that's great. Yeah, and only ever does that to creep you out. (laughs) Also, it was really interesting for me because I didn't see it when it first came out. Like I like uh, waited a bit, Um, but I also then kind of almost contextless got a lot got to process a lot of the discourse about it in a lot of ways it was really interesting for me where it's like almost to this day there are people who don't get that there were no good white people in that movie how many acquaintances we have who would vote for obama yeah you know like that kind of thing Mm -hmm. but i also just deeply remember people arguing oh did she have to was she going to be good and then any brown person i knew who knew about the school was like no he went to sarah lawrence Mm-hmm. The second you knew that he went to Sarah Lawrence, there was like this visceral, oh, I know what happens here. <laughs> like, 
like just this this kind the the interaction there was really interesting and he actually basically said as such uh down the line uh someone was like was asking him i think whether it was related to his experience of dating while at sarah lawrence and he was like yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i it's one of those movies where you watch it and like you know you like you feel it in your bones what's gonna happen and you can tell people around you if they're not black don't quite get the mm-hmm. get that feeling the whole time and I feel it's that turning point where there she's on the stairs and she goes you know I can't give you the keys mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's like this big slap in the face to everyone who hasn't been paying attention and, and then everyone another, else is screaming another like the like, cereal <laughs> duh, right. duh everyone yelling but she kept her cereal and milk separate though like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah like literally like that scene where he's he's yelling for the keys and like you can feel before she does it that he's already given up but like Mm -hmm. there's no other way for him to get out of there so like he's still just like pleading with her to be decent and like she just does Mm -hmm. that that turn that's so unnerving there's so many things in this movie that are just like not horror movie things that are unnerving like when he first approaches walter the groundskeeper and like the way that that whole interaction goes and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. I, <laughs> the weirdest thing in this movie is how like unnerving it is when he puts his hand out to to dap logan and logan grabs his Nothing. hand and shakes it and it's like yo having been in what? that situation <laughs> like it's just <sighs> there's this moment of oh that's how this night's gonna go like mm-hmm. <laughs> Like in a really strong way, uh, like of just understanding, oh, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that exchange happening so often when you go someplace and there's only, you know, like two or three of you, and that looking over and getting nothing, <laughs> you know, right. like, mm-hmm. and that that is horror to me. You know, like that yeah. is that is actually something that in the past has triggered anxiety attacks. Like locked into the code switch, and they won't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That you realize that if something goes down, this is a person who's not going to have your back because Mm -hmm. they've drank the Kool Aid, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Like, doesn't see the situation that you see. Like, so much of that is like making the eye contact. Like, you do like the bug eyes, like, Uh yo. But like, if they don't return that, you're just like, oh, okay, cool. So like, there's nothing there. And then at that moment, you're like, oh, this is a crew of people who don't like. There's not even a single real one here. All right. Mm -hmm. So I know like that is like that pre-warning for like, you know, in your soul, there's going to be at least one comment that hurts you for a week Yeah, mm-hmm. that's said by somebody. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be nobody who speaks up like, okay. you know, just on, on that mild love or, or those, those relationships where you're like, I care about you. No, I am not going home to see your family mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we, that's the thing we don't talk about that once we talk about your family, this isn't happening anymore. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember thinking while watching the movie, and I get that these are narrative beats, but so many of these things, like the handshake and these comments that they just sort of mess up. And I'm like, not spoiling anything, but like when you do a little research in the Black people, I'm just like, make sure you like, oh, it's called a dab. Yeah, these people. Do it in this no. way. Make sure well, but I, I remember mean, thinking like, they have no reason to. There's no motivation. Yeah. Like, yeah. It, speak, it speaks to the arrogance of like yeah. being able once to. Once you're there, it's too late. Like, to take over yeah. it yeah and and that's why it works because she is more aware because she's the one who has to go out mm-hmm. she has to be able to speak the language mm-hmm. 
But once you're there, that is already, you're already served on a plate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, we, we talked a lot about uh, last night, Aaron specifically was talking about how like, how there's moments where Chris could get out of this, but that Chris is like willfully putting himself into a situation where like he has made himself vulnerable out of his care for this other person. And like, that's the whole reason he can't run. It's the whole reason he agreed to like go to this place where he doesn't know where he is and not have a like way to get out himself. Like, cause it's, you know, it's her car, it's her keys. It's, you know, the whole situation is off and like, this only but, works because he's he makes himself vulnerable. But the thing is, we do that because like we do that so mm-hmm. often. I just think of high school where I would be the only black kid going to something. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. would convince myself that like, nah, these are my friends. It's going to be fine. No, there's no way they'd put me in a situation that's going to be awful. And then True. I'm in the car with a classmate who's whose mom turns out she'll drop me off at my at my house which is 10 blocks away from them but won't but this whole time has never let her daughter out the car because she thinks it's unsafe mm-hmm. you know like we do this all the time because we need if we always listened to that red flag we would not talk to any white people ever mm-hmm. like just hands down even the ones that are my friends you just immediately like i remember clearly meeting somebody and Afterwards, my wife just being like, all right, but you know how this goes. Like, be careful with like dealing with those white girls because you know what happens. And this was this was literally just a the red flags were there, you know, and it's like, you know, hashtag not all white girls. But it was like that kind of the signs were there. And then three months later, exactly that kind of emotional thing happened, mm-hmm. you know? And you have we- the intuition and then you gaslight yourself about it before yeah. you even get to that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there's a certain extent to which we can't, right? Avoid it, right? Mm-hmm. And also, like, let's be real. He's in a relationship and his friend tells him, don't be dumb. Mm-hmm. The first thing this dude is going to do is go, nah, screw you. I got to prove to him that I was right. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's that ego. It's that no because if i leave now with this red flag then he was right and i'm gonna hear it for the rest of my life the arrogant part of us literally sometimes would rather be like i'm about i will get axe murdered but i will never have to hear him say i told you so (laughs) you know like (laughs) we all know those dudes you know and there's some stuff that i'm that stubborn about like i know i'm wrong here but it does not matter it's also internalizing it too Mm -hmm. like internalizing the racism like that he's in this relationship and is seeing the red flags and is still proceeding. And like, it does get to a point where like every red flag has been flown and he knows what's really happening. But up to that point, it's still like, maybe things will be different. Maybe this person will be nice. Maybe this person will save me. Maybe this person is not as bad as they, they see as I'm feeling because they're saying the things that they think I want to hear. Like, yeah, the, the acquaintances who, who do say like, I would vote for Obama for a third term. Like that's, Mm -hmm. that's signaling some sort of virtue or friendliness or safety. And like, definitely felt a lot of that stuff after last June. And like a lot of friends who acquaintances like to text me out of nowhere to check in on me and see how I'm doing, who did not give a shit about me before. Stop, please, for the love of God. Like if you don't check on me when I just haven't been around for three days, don't check on me then 
Do not text me on election day asking me what I'm doing to take care of myself on this very hard and trying day. Yeah. Not having this text conversation. And so I just stopped responding to them. It wasn't worth it. Over the summer, I remember specifically the protests were happening and there was a protest going on during the Hugo Awards. Um, Or it might have been the Nebulas and then the Hugo Awards. They both happened and they were both disasters this year, including George R. R. Martin mispronouncing everyone's names, including the name of the magazine, Faya, (sighs) that I work with. And it was a disaster um, because apparently that's hard to say. Um, But I think it was the Nebulas that were happening while the protests were happening. And I have this massive dissonance that reminds me of the experience of like seeing like the red signs and like the red flags and get out where getting a live live tweets and videos and images of what's happening. And then this, this sci-fi award show and like no one black won. After talking all this big game Mm -hmm. for however long about diversity and et cetera. And then just being like, nah, you know, like, and that's what it constantly feels like. Yeah. The, the faux diversity. And that looks very much like get out. Like yeah. they're using black bodies, but they're putting white people in them. Sorry yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen this, but right. you should watch Spoiler. this movie. <laughs> I think we do spoilers at the beginning anyway, yeah. so it's fine. Yeah. But yeah. But also like Chris has been dealing with these microaggressions his entire life. It's not unique to this family, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about my friends, you know, 15 years ago at NC State. They have easily said some of this stuff before, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. they and that's had what more hurts. black friends, saw some movies, read some books, and got learned. But like, this is just the nature of what it is. And so even though those things are concerning, those wouldn't be things that make me think, oh, some wild shit's going to go down here. I need to get out of this situation. It's so like, yeah. It's just, it, is, it would just be, yeah. That it basic would just be, oh, we're never going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> And that basic level of discomfort that we all tend to tolerate and it, you know, contributes to our resilience. And, and I know we're on a podcast. I am absolutely rolling my eyes right now about all of that because it's infuriating and it's tiring and it's frustrating and it's horrific in a lot of ways, but it's that everyday horror of living it too. It's difficult as a creator too, right? Because especially after last summer and you get those, you know, sudden, you get those calls and you're basically just sitting there wondering, am I there, Chris? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and in a really deep way. Am, mm-hmm. am, I, am I this body that they're going to use for coolness and rip me out of? Like, that's, that's, that's what it feels like, you mm-hmm. know? Um, that was, and then, but you're also like, but I, I'm, I'm working real hard, right? So there's this combination of, are these red flag, red flags, or are these just the small, you know, tiny cut deaths, you know, that we're used to, mm-hmm. you know, so you, you can't afford to ignore them, right? Like, yep. you, you have to lean into them, mm-hmm. and hope that this isn't the one that, like, t- takes your soul. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> it's, a, it's a minefield. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. I find more and more uh, over, how, you know, having been married to my wife for, like, a dozen years at this point, like, anytime, <laughs> anytime any of her either her sisters or her black friends bring home a white guy i'm like i don't know about this guy like everybody else You're is like, like having some experience fine. with white gentlemen i am not <laughs> fond of these uh-huh. like, this is this is not a i don't know about these white guys white guys are i don't, I don't think you can trust them 
<laughs> no, but I I remember specifically, I, I won't use names, but there was a, a friend of hers who had like a long-term boyfriend was from another country. His parents came in from out of town and she came to stay with us because they were living together and like his parents didn't know that one, they were living together and two, she was black. And I just remember being like, whoa no stop yeah, go yeah. turn around I, go the other direction this is not okay yeah. i've lived that yeah i yeah. met mm-hmm. one of my college girlfriend's parents they didn't know what we were dating went to their house a couple of times I was like oh it's my friend from college it's my friend from college it's like why is this dude always here it's like you know that's a good question <laughs> but like let's address I, this i remember in, in thinking a... that, like watching this movie i'm like this is not that out of the ordinary like i didn't yeah i'm dating... a very uh more sitcom style version of that uh my wife um when she was in college and when we were in high school because we we dated for a long time was closeted and we didn't really know which end of that would have been you know more disastrous when they came out you know uh even though i was uh they knew i was her best friend i remember once i was staying with her in her dorm and we get a call that her parents were on the road because they decided they wanted a long road trip and they were on the way to the college. And I was literally laying in the bed and we are losing our shit. And she had to like make up some story about like, I'm not even at my dorm and mom, you can't surprise me like that. You know, like I went to such and such school activity and they 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 had to turn back. She made them turn all the way back. And it was like a two and a half hour ride, like three hours to get to her school. And we were like, and she was like, you can never, never surprise me at my school ever again. <laughs> and it harms my academics. That's the only thing. <laughs> they just called early in the, like, mm. they called it like eight, nine, like, surprise, we're on our way. And she's like, the hell you are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, when I have dated white men in the past, I have felt like I am auditioning for their family. Mm. And that feels real gross. So on my third date with my now, white husband I was like let's talk deal breakers because I don't have time for this shit mm-hmm. and so I went through a list of all these things and I was like are you comfortable being in an interracial relationship and he said yeah sure of course and I was like you need to say it out loud because if he stuttered I would have walked away mm-hmm. just to reaffirm that it's it's a good <laughs> it's it's a good thing to keep in mind because a lot of the people who are like yeah sure are because they don't actually think about it mm-hmm. um they don't consider the interactions that may come up with their families or with their because friends. Because it won't hurt or... them. Mm-hmm. You know, like they, they have yet It's to... not a big deal, mm-hmm. but it is. Yeah. And I mean, I, I can tell you, like, certainly even even guys who, who are comfortable with a lot of that stuff have no idea, like, the reality of, like, raising Black girls in America. Like, they, they don't have experience with that. They don't know anything about that. And you know, until 10 years ago, neither did I. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, and yeah. they don't, and a lot of times people don't think it's something they have to learn. Like really? I, like as a weird, like I remember when people tried to mock Brad Pitt for talking about how he did his daughter's hair in an interview and talking about like the hair products. And I'm like, nah, dog, that's what you should be doing. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, yeah. Yeah you need to learn how to do her hair because there's nothing worse than when your parents don't know how to do your hair. Like Mm -hmm. I was really fortunate and like my mom does, does my locks. Like 
but I, I had friends whose parents did not know how to, how to make it work. And my dad parted my hair with my white dad parted my hair with a ruler once. It was <sighs> yeah, wildly. He also championed picture... my natural hair though. So I'll give him that. Wildly the picture of me that the most people in the world have seen is me doing my daughter's hair because uh, they showed it when I was on Roland Martin's show. <laughs> and like uh didn't ask didn't ask me about this beforehand but that was like the picture they found and like it's so it's so funny because like my in-laws think it's just like the cutest thing that i will do my daughter's hair and i was like somebody's got to man like my my wife isn't always here like i i gotta figure this shit out yeah i feel like it's similar to like painting dads as the babysitter and like giving yeah. them a, a gold star and a cookie like oh you you took care of your children for a few yeah. hours great like no that's there's some there's a bare minimum that needs to be yeah the bar needs to be raised yeah we don't need yeah. to think that if like mom is gone for the weekend that she's going to come back and there's just going to be something stuck in the afro and you don't know <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh what what's happening there this may or may not be in context of, of the podcast but like i i always remember jeremy I worked at a sh- at a, at a comic shop when the the pages of uh of of Danny doing his wife's hair uh made it yep. to um to the shelf and I that blew people's mind that blew our mind like I remember we were running around showing each other it like those mm-hmm. pages because like I just remember as like black and afab being like oh they love each other like you know like that was just like oh he he learned okay okay mm-hmm. cool you know like but that was it's still something that's considered so weird where i'm like do doing your partner's hair is like the sweetest thing you could possibly do it's mm-hmm. so <laughs> profoundly intimate and yeah like there's so much trauma wrapped up in it sometimes like i have some hair loss from chronic illness mm-hmm. and to have my husband like offer to like help me condition my hair like every time it happens like I break down crying yeah like either from like remembering the trauma or from just experiencing that like moment of tenderness and that he champions that and like it's not an extra task to do is really nice I, but he doesn't he knows he does not get a gold star or a cookie for doing it either so. <laughs> yeah every every couple of months that uh that page from uh the Danny and Missy story that, that you're talking about makes its way back around and uh, a new group of online people find it and they're like Oh, this is this is so amazing and it's 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 so interesting to me because like I get a you know a lot of praise for it and I'm I'm really happy that thing made it 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 wasn't even like the first story I submitted for that collection it, the first thing I did ended up getting uh, canceled and you know ended up picking up what was basically my second of three pitches that I had sent them um, but like it's it ended up coming out so incredibly uh, both because uh, my my wife made a suggestion that uh, I think has made all the difference in, in how it was received, which is in the original story I had written, uh, he was doing micro braids for Misty and she was like, shit, they better be watching like 16 hours of movies. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay, we'll do, we'll do something, something smaller. Um, and then like uh, all the credit in the world to Gurihiro, the artist on that story, because like, they're Japanese and like nine out of 10 American artists who draw black women's hair in comics, screw it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and like they, they did three different hairstyles in that eight page story. 
and they nail all three of them. Like they do an incredible job, which, you know, I imagine in their case must have taken research and, you know, they, they I've suffered through that. The, the, the quiet stuff that never, no one sees, but like going through the different hair hairstyles and being like, no, something like this. No, please God, don't do that to her. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, and, and Misty Knight specifically has like a dozen of those in comics <laughs> where, you know, it's like one part of her hair is a completely different texture than mm -hmm. another part We don't of talk hair. about the bang. We do not ever <laughs> talk about the bang. I'm still traumatized by that weird little, like, I've decided that it's one of those weird, like, um, extension tracks that, like, <laughs> is just there because that, like, that can't be the same hair. It just hurts me too much yeah, that she has straight bangs and an afro is like the wildest shit <laughs> that's not even I, how any of that works i feel that way with seeing other photographers who don't know how to photograph or edit brown skin like everyone is yellow mm -hmm. oh. um and i've definitely gotten inquiries from couples who were like yeah we need a photographer who actually knows how to make us show up on camera and make us look good and the same with hair too, like it, you know, like there was a fair amount of photoshopping and smoothing, especially for headshots that we have to do as photographers and like people who just don't understand how to basically clone stamp or correct hair for flyaways and stuff or just mm -hmm. leave it and make people look terrible. Or deal, or deal with yeah. hyperpigmentation. Uh-huh. They um, try to smooth out things or like I've definitely been in situations where like I have a lot of freckles across my face and I've been put in makeup that just makes me look like an alien. And I hate uh, it. It's so doing doing that dance uh, with coloring for comics too. Mm. It's like, please, we're not purple. Uh, I've I've come to a thing where I downloaded the Fenty opening color line, mm -hmm. and I just literally tell them a number. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it should be within this range, and then I'm like, see, because this color has a different undertone than this, and this this is what we're going for. No purple, please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, which I, is also great watching, you know, horror noir, both the documentary itself, but also watching the movies and seeing like the color grading done for black characters, you know, mm -hmm. when they're when they're centralized, seeing it done in a few different ways. And seeing how the makeup has changed too, mm -hmm. because like right. Blackula was like a prime example of how bad it was. Yes. Just like we'll just put you in some gray makeup. Um I feel like Dawn of the Dead was the same way, but I think it was more of a comic book effect. But yeah, later later films definitely treated people a little better color-wise. I've had the same issue with comic book coloring. I think specifically, like I, I love everybody who's worked with me on Princeless, but when we were you know doing volume two, we introduced Angelica, who is specifically textually in the story, the most beautiful of the sisters. And I was like, the one thing we cannot do is have her be lighter skinned than the other yes. characters. Yep, yep, um, yep. She needs to be dark. And like getting the first pages back and being like, no, dark. And getting him back again and going, no, 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 dark. <laughs> like just having to like send pictures of like, you know, actual, actual dark black models and mm -hmm. being like, no, like, you're not getting it like you're at Halle Berry that's <laughs> not correct like it needs to be way this way um you know and, and Ron Wimberly talks about that a lot in his mm -hmm. like uh he wrote a whole thing about coloring and coloring black people as a black person and editors asking him to lighten and lighten and lighten and mm -hmm. whew, it's rough yeah yeah that's <laughs> 
And and it's so frustrating because they still do the like I've gotten from multiple people excuses about like printing and I'm like but I know that's BS because one we're not using the same paper that they used to use and second uh, let me point to this color right here on the tree that's a closer closer skin tone than what I'm going for here. So I know that you can print these colors and stop lying to me. Yeah, folks have said that like, oh, the lighting is tricky. It's like, if you're setting up professional lighting and you haven't done your job, then that's on you. It mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the person that you're photographing. Like, don't blame a black person for being black in a picture. That's One of these things is easier to change. The uh-huh. your yeah. or my uh-huh. skin tone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, we're yeah. not changing this. Uh, we're not changing this arm right here. So you better change that light. Like mm-hmm. that's just... Mm-hmm. I like had uh, a fit the other day because I was literally watching. I saw a picture for like the new cast of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And I I grew up on that show. I like adore Mm -hmm. it. And I'm just also like, stop punking out and making your darkest black person my skin tone. Mm -hmm. Like, please, Mm -hmm. there's no good. Like, we can light night scenes now. We've done it many times. So you can't use that as an excuse for why you don't have a darker skin character, Mm -hmm. you know? um and it's just it's so frustrating um and that's you know one of the reasons that I love you know seeing the lighting work that like you see in Get Out or you know like the trailers for the new Candyman and just seeing like oh it's all designed to light them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah in Black Panther or Moonlight or any of these you know other recent examples of, of you know Black people yeah, I refuse to believe or... that people can't light black people in dark horror movies because I saw Moonlight and, and that is a, a darkly lit movie. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff at night. <laughs> also, the whole point is like that yeah. you were lighting for night. It's not, oh, yeah. it was it was dark outside and we couldn't see them. It's it's like it's, yeah, it's basic. It's really yeah. basic. The, the number of, of excuses that boil down to I can't do my job correctly. Or, uh, or I didn't think wild. about doing my job correctly and now I'm getting called out on it. It's real, yeah, yeah real telling. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> the recommendation section on this, there are any number of I'm things kidding. that we can recommend just, you know, based on, on everything that we've talked about in here. Um, do you guys have anything that hits in like our, our usual groups or, you know, LGBT uh, horror movies for for black horror or disability for black horror or um, and anything you really want to talk about that you know covers both being black and you know feminist or, or any of these other things you'd like to recommend yeah. to people I've got an LGBTQIA horror film it's actually out on Shutter, which is the same service that um, created horror noir it's called Spiral um, Watch it's, that. About, Good. it's about an interracial couple a gay couple moving to a random town in what, like the Midwest, the black person in the couple definitely gets gaslit multiple times in the, in the story. And there's the dynamic of we're around these really nice coded white people and his white partner just does not believe him when shit starts to go crazy. Yeah. I have really gotten as angry at characters in, in horror movies as I did at the like white husband in that movie. Yeah. It's really frustrating. It's it's couples when when I'm watching them like gaslight each other or and and parents who are not accepting that if their kids are scared, even if you don't believe them, you don't tell young kids that they're lying or that it's not real unless you are damn sure. Like, you know, like 
at least make the show of 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 looking and and investigating like stop just jumping from the you know like i don't believe it actually the recommendation i want to do is uh slightly breaking the rules because it's a book uh not a movie and also it is young adult uh justina ireland's dread nation uh it is a YA novel uh and queer uh about an alternate history in which the civil war ends early because the dead start rising and so the young black kids are sent to schools quote unquote where they are trained to uh defend white people against zombies and the main character is a very rebellious very angry uh young black girl who ends up teaming up with a lighter skinned black girl who kind of has always seen herself as oh the height of her life is going to be being basically the protector of you know some high class society white woman um, and it is very much about race um, and interactions. There's, you know, like definitely this strong kind of story about colorism in there. Um, it actually has a, a sequel as well. Uh, but Dread Nation, also Dread Nation has like, the two books have like the best covers I've ever seen. Like just the hair alone on on the two of them is really just a different level. I collect American Girl dolls and I keep telling myself I'm going to do a photo shoot with my Addie where I dress her to look like the main character from Dread Nation. Uh, oh yeah because awesome. like they're real dope especially if you're liking a lot of the more historically based horror that was discussed i really recommend it there is a scene in there uh involving them having to watch experimentation done in front of a crowd with a zombie that is just has stuck with me for so long like it's just really really like scary in a way that i think a lot of people don't give credit to ya um and if you like thrillers at all tiffany jackson specializes in black ya thrillers uh she is a i don't want to say say possibly former uh but she might still be a current like uh does like indie horror movie writing and directing she has done just some really intense books uh in particular one of them is called monday's not coming in which the protagonist realizes that her best friend has just gone missing and no one else seems to notice or care. Um, and it's about mm. like the thriller mystery of what happened and why. Um, and it's really about, you know, like that sense of young black girls uh, and whether people care whether or not they go missing and what happens to them. Um, I actually want to jump in on the heels of that. Uh, Danny reminded me of the Nightlight pod. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this. Um, it's a- By Tanya. Yeah, it's- I, I've, so I, uh, she had one of my stories on it. So. I was going to say, so the Nightlight Pod is uh, Black horror stories performed by Black authors, and their <sighs> debut episode is Justina Ireland's short story that's from the Dread Nation like universe. Yes, but it's, it's a so good. Short story written for that episode. It's like a twenty minute episode. If you want to get a feel for what this is like, um, it's great. Uh, it's called the Nightlight Pod. It's it's a lot of fun, and you're getting every week. You're getting like a different Black writer, and then just Black voices every time. Um, it's it's good stuff. Uh, I did uh, my story on it is called uh, "Nasty at the at uh, Bellowa," which is a kind of uh, ode to like old school like speculative pulp, and it is space not werewolves. That's uh, so good. Uh, I had a lot of fun reading that, and the 
voice, the production on the audio and the special effects they do are is so mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. Um, and they tell some really, like, mine is more sci-fi, but like they tell some really like creepy stories on that. Mm-hmm. I'm excited to listen to that. Yeah, and there's like 56 episodes. It's so yeah. good. Uh, okay, I'm gonna Tanya start with does, <laughs> uh, Like Tanya does excellent work and really like seeks out like some really dope people to like get their stories told on there. That's awesome. Yeah, we actually just just had Justina Ireland on the podcast talking about Ready or Not, which I think that actually just came out the week we're recording this. So she was awesome. We, we talked a bit about Dread Nation on there as well there's this is one of those categories that i feel like there's just like such a huge wealth of things to talk about but also we've talked about a lot of them um over the course of this i think one that i want to mention that we talked about on the podcast before but people might not have heard it's not like a perfect movie by any stretch but like the first purge i think gets overlooked a lot as being part of like that string of purge movies whereas the thing about the first purge is it's the good one um (laughs) You know, it's the, like the fourth in the series. Yeah, that's what I've heard is that like those movies like get better and and more focused as they go on. And that fascinates me. Yeah, because the first one is very much a like home invasion movie with Ethan Hawke and it's okay. Um, and the, the second one is, is kind of like they thought, okay, now like we have a bigger budget so we can go outside. Um, and, and see this and then the third one like is basically an action movie but the fourth one is about the first time it happens and it all takes place in you know in a, a neighborhood in new york and it's the the cast is almost all like black and hispanic and it's about this sort of like it's about the fact that it's a government experiment to get rid of poor and, and non-white people and you know it really like hones in on what's interesting about it and they use you know a lot of great black actors and they have a black director this is the only one that's of the the four movies it's not directed by you know the same guy who created the franchise and it's it's really well made and i think gets gets overlooked a lot um they talked about it very briefly in in horror noir um but it's it's one that you know i think people who are interested in this stuff might have missed because of the nature of it now I didn't okay this beforehand, but one thing that I have been reading recently that uh, I would like to recommend is uh, <laughs> is the Queen of Bad Dreams. I'll which, fight uh, you. <laughs> which Danny wrote and uh, is an incredible comic uh, about not just uh, horror, but about you know nightmares and dreams coming to life, and a uh, a, a woman who's you know basically an action hero whose job is to contain these horrors that come from people's imaginations and it's also it's also very much like a noir story set within that world um and it is also uh you know the main character is is gay and it focuses on her you know relationship with her wife and their daughter as well not to not to embarrass danny too much but i mean i i guess you i deserve it after i mentioned you first so (laughs) yeah (laughs) It also just happens to be, you know, sitting over here on my desk, so in my office. But that is definitely one I recommend. That is available wherever you know fine books are sold. Um, definitely worth checking out. So I guess all that's left after that is for uh, everybody to let people know where they can find you online. Uh, Danny, this is uh, your first time, so you want to go first. Let people know where they can find you and follow your work. 
pretty much you can find me way too often on Twitter um, and also a little bit on Instagram. I'm trying to be there more um, because I need to post more Gundam pictures uh, <laughs> at Wear Dogs, W-E-R-E-D-A-W-G-Z. Um, because I have a brand to maintain and it's werewolves. But yeah, I'm pretty much always there. Um, uh, I should actually soon do another uh, post of my short horror stories and all of that. Awesome. And uh, Emmanuel, where can people find you online? Um, I am at elipscom2. It's E-L-I-P-S-C-O-M-B-2. And it's just teacher things, but also talking about dorky stuff and other things I think kids might be interested in. Fantastic. And Ali, but what about you? Uh, I am a professional photographer and I specialize in brands, portraits, weddings, only small ones now because of COVID. And I sell art prints and I am Ali Mullen on Instagram and Twitter, A-L-L-I-E-M-U-L-L-I-N and AliMullen.com if people still believe in websites. And of course, uh, I am uh, on Twitter and Instagram at jrome58. It's J-R-O-M-E-5-8. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter, like Danny. I'm trying to be on Instagram more, but I'm not as good at that. My website is uh, jeremywhitley.com. Um, currently, uh, you can pre-order my book, School for Extraterrestrial Girls, book two, which is coming out in June. Uh, Raven the Pirate Princess, book nine, just came out. And uh, Marvel Action Chillers uh, is just wrapping up and should be out in the collection very soon. Um, as far as the podcast goes, uh, you can follow Progressively Horrified on our Patreon at patreon.com slash progressively horrified, where you can get these uh, episodes a little early. You can also uh, get our, our special series that we're doing, which we just recorded the first of last week, uh, which is Progressively Furious, where we're reviewing all of the Fast and Furious movies through a progressive lens. We're also on Twitter okay. at Prague. Why is this the first time I'm hearing about this? That's amazing. <laughs> that little interlude was like the biggest treat to show up in my feed. <laughs> I, I downed an entire six pack of Corona while talking about the Fast and the Furious this week. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, in, in January, we should have the Too Fast, Too Furious coming up, which I haven't seen since it first came out. I'm looking forward to making fun of Tyrese's acting again. Our, our Twitter is uh, Prague Horror Pod, as in Progressive Horror Podcast. Um, we're uh, progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm for our website. And please, wherever you're listening to this, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate it, and review it. As many stars as you are humanly allowed to give it, we would really appreciate that. Uh, that's all for now. Danny, Emmanuel, Ali, I want to thank you guys so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having us. For sure. Thanks. Much fun. Yeah. And thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, now, just because of the weird order things got recorded because of, uh, <laughs> because of everything that happened last week, uh, you'll be hearing this actually the week before you hear us talk in depth about Get Out, which we <laughs> recorded just the night before we were recording this. So if you're interested in talking more, hearing more about Get Out, uh, jump in and listen to us talk about that for like three hours solid next week. All right. See you later. Bye. Progressively Horrified was created and produced by Jeremy Whitley. This episode featured Jeremy Whitley, Ali Mullen, Danny Lohr, and Emmanuel Lipscomb. All opinions expressed by the commentators are solely their own and not intended to represent the intent or opinion of the filmmakers, nor do they represent any of the employers, institutions, or publishers of the commentators. Our theme music is Epic Darkness by Mario Cole 06 and was provided royalty-free from Pixabay. Contact us on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod or by email at progressivelyhorrified at gmail.com.
www.thepeopleshow.com. the little clap as your marker jeremy i get that it's like for audio but it just looks like it's celebratory like i did it (laughs) (laughs) that's the real secret it is